welcome to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG, a literary exploration of the world of Sherlock Holmes and the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Hello, BFG. How are you doing? Not too bad. Bowman, how about yourself? Good, buddy. Very good. This is the 17th, no, 18th, 19th of March. Help me out. Saturday the 19th of March, isn't it? No, 18th. 18th of March, actually. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. That's the 18th. St. Patrick's Day was yesterday, so that would be this. Eight, that would be the 18th. Yep, right on. And how was your St. Patrick's Day? Uh, very quiet, actually. I uh, didn't really go out. Uh, just we went over to friends and hung out. I had a Kilkenny, uh, just you know, watching some TV and and, and talking. Nothing too spectacular. Where did you have your? Plus, Kilkenny? I had a podcast two in the morning, right? So that's true. Where was your Kilkenny? Did you go out? Oh no, I uh, I had a I had I had I had a can from home that uh, that okay. I that I brought I brought over there. If I remember correctly, they used to have uh, Kilkenny on tap down in O'Connor's, didn't they, in the Centrum? Oh yes, O'Connor's. Yeah, I don't think they have it anymore. Uh, they might have it. They have it at the Central Beer House now. They, I, they might have it there. Listen, but, uh, yeah, Kilkenny was at on tap there. How much do you pay for a pint of beer now, back home in uh, Ontario way? You're looking at average seven dollars. That's is that for like an import or seven dollars for like a domestic Canadian? There's no way you pay seven bucks for a pint of uh, Canadian, would you, off the tap? No, true. No, you pay like about five buck, five, five bucks around that. I'd say. Five dollars Canadian, six or seven for a Guinness. Yeah. What do you think Holmes would drink if it came to lager? I was curious what he would be drinking. You know, given like the little beer and beef that he uh, he uh, un- he undertakes in uh, Scandal Bohemia. So I was wondering what kind of beer that he was having. Maybe a bitter. I would say it's a lager. So you think it's more continental, more like a uh, bitter? Hoppy kind of thing than than like an ale, you think? Or uh, well, I think it would be a bitter ale, like uh, like they drink in many parts of England, and I, I, I don't know, I don't actually know, but um, the etymology of beer and kind of its derivations and histories, I'm not too well informed on. Um, I know where certain hops come from and whatnot, but I always thought lager was more of an Eastern European thing that that was kind of appropriated by. Uh, the, the the Brits and the Americans and and you know other places in the world. I always knew England to be its ale, uh, or, or knew it for its ale and its bitters. True, but Conan Doyle is he does say like specifically a beer. He doesn't say ale or anything, right? So you got to think that mm. that he, it might be associated with some sort of like lager, you know, like a, or, or something amber. Yeah, I, hey, I don't know. That's that's something we could look into. Like, but the evidence is not in the text as, as to what it is. No. We got the generic beer, so I guess there's not really much we can go into detail on that. No, there isn't. And 
Why it was good though. Th- that we're in agreement. Uh, it is, but I, I, I just think, wonder if I the word was being used colloquially, beer, you know, to refer to all kinds of drinks. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves, man. This is episode three of Lighten the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG. Today we move away from the novels and the world of the novels that uh, Conan Doyle started off the char- the character with, and we're moving into the adventures of Sherlock Holmes, and we're going to be looking at the first three short stories. Yes. Uh... After the novels, after done, after finishing his study in Scarlet and the Sign of Four, the, we're now moving into to the. I guess it's been bundled as as fully as the collection in, in many publications as the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. But these were but this is in fact uh, the title that was given later to a collection of all of the short stories that were published in the Strand at this time, right? Yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll talk about uh, how the Strand magazine did indeed publish these and and how the adventures came along collectively a little bit afterwards um first of all though it's been it's been a bit of months since we have had our last episode on the sign of the four um how, how have things been going over there in canada nothing much has changed the the daily routines of uh call center life can, can continue um Weather-wise, it's been an interesting winter, I will tell you that. Almost like spring temperature in February. Uh, and then in March, just beginning to just like this week, this past week in March. Uh, uh, that's nice. I'm looking at the window right now, and the cat is spraying the uh, front of the window. That's fantastic. I got distracted there. <laughs> when you say spraying, do you mean pissing on? Yes. Classy. Classy cat over there, buddy. Yeah, well, we got uh, that was the old, the older one, Lou. He uh, he's not a big fan of the younger cat. We got a couple years after we had him, uh, uh, Boo, simply on the basis that uh, I, I guess because he was found in a dumpster and he's always been kind of a feral type cat and very keeping to himself and not liking much of the collective cat pack. Do cats run in packs? Mm, I think so. What's or are they pack animals or no they're more like lone predators aren't they they're not really uh, a pride no, no, i don't know no they're like <laughs> yeah i don't know what the collective noun is for cats obviously a pride of lions but what would it be for a cat somebody out there yeah, knows Joe. Okay. somebody out there knows a cavalcade of cats yeah i'll go a with collection that. of cats we'll go with that a, cal- a collection of cats what about a litter uh maybe a litter no, of cats. that's not right litter ref- that, that's that's more about puppies and like uh, little kittens and stuff like babies isn't it uh, but going back, uh, essentially, after having a clear February pretty much all the way through, like like high temperatures, melting snow, all those things, with some freezing rain thrown in there because of the, the, the different temperatures here in the Ottawa Valley and across Ontario as well, it seems, uh, we end up getting a huge blizzard coming. It hit the north, it hit like the American sea, Atlantic seaboard as well. And kind of came up through New York, and then came up into like you know the the, uh, the maritime provinces, and came into Ottawa and Montreal, and eventually you know the Great Lakes area. And essentially, it was just a, a ridiculous blizzard that um, just buried the entire town, you know, in, in in snow the past couple of days. And finally, that's becoming to melt, to come starting to melt. So, piers were in, I guess the. Uh, Either the final stages or the, or what we know as Sheila's brush finally has uh, ended. I don't know, but yeah. Well, Sheila's brush hasn't uh, hit us uh, over uh, here this year. 
We've had no snow at all this year. Uh, a little sprinkling here and there, but nothing that's lasted on the ground. Uh, had some yeah. cold, cold, chilly days, but man, I'm telling you what, I've been in Scotland now for 12 years. This is my, this will be my 12th year. Is that right? No, this will be my 11th year. And I have seen the weather here. I mean, obviously the uh, Gulf Stream keeps us quite moist, uh, but I've seen the weather here change a lot. It's getting more wet and it's getting later before summer arrives, you know, like our summer now over here is, you know, four or five weeks long. And when I say that, I mean, of proper summer temperatures, you know, interesting. That's weird. The whole world's going to shit, which is just as well that we're here doing something fun, like uh, looking at the works of Conan Doyle. Exactly. Escapism, mm. right? Yeah, I escapism guess so, yeah. into classic late Victorian novels <laughs> and short stories. And short stories in this case. Yeah. Well, these are the first three short stories of 56 that Conan Doyle would uh, would end up writing about the Holmes character. And we've got two more novels to come, too. We've committed ourselves to this project um, after a pretty successful series, a very successful series, I think, uh, looking down the literary gun barrel at Ian Fleming and all of his James Bond creations in literature. That was a real blast. And so coming out of those conversations was a decision to embark upon um, a taste that you introduced me to, to be fair, uh, Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes character. Obviously, he's become such a caricature of himself and has been represented numerous, countless times, in fact, through um, not just film and television, but radio plays and stage plays and video, video games, comic books. Yeah, that, you know, to say Sherlock Holmes, everybody has a point of reference. And this is us going back to the source material because we enjoy studying literature, we enjoy studying music, we enjoy studying um, popular influences, um, and that's kind of what we're doing. Do you want to explain the scoring system, just in case anyone is uh, uh, jumped in here on the third episode? All right. So we have, we call it a little, a little nice little acronym that Scott came up with, uh, PIPES. P for principles. I for investigation, P for perpetrators, E for environs, S for supporting players. We These are each ranked out of five, and so then we provide our score to each of these uh, attributes uh, in order to kind of give a final score to each of the stories. That's it. Yep, and uh, we'll get an index scoring at the end of everything, and then we'll try to rank our favorite stories and novels according to our index and also our aesthetic feel and kind of a whole reflective, uh, summative, emotional response to the Sherlock Holmes oeuvre, if you will. Mm-hmm. Ah, well, look, buddy, um, let's, let's just talk for a real brief moment before we go into talking about the short stories themselves and the Strand magazine. Let's just talk about how Conan Doyle's first two Sherlock Holmes adventures, which were both small novel length, Let's talk about how those created something that his audiences, his readership, wanted much more of. Um, what's your impression of the popularity of Holmes following the sign of the four? From what I understand, around that time period was where it was when the, the American uh, publication started printing some of those stories, uh, uh, printing the chapters of those two books in the study of the Scarlet and the sign of four. In, in 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 their in their national magazines, am I not mistaken? Wasn't that that a big part of the the 
not only in England, but a big part of the Sherlock Holmes uh, cry for more uh, was also was was um, garnered in America as well. Yeah, you're right. And indeed, uh, The Sign of the Four came from a commission um, by an American publisher um, and for exactly the reasons you, you, you state. So, yeah, you're right. It was at that time that it became more popular. I recall that story. whole story about... I recall that story about uh, Doyle meaning, meaning, meaning like a, an American publisher or something at the Langham Hotel. Um, and they're all discussing, you know, what's, what... what, what uh, how they're going to distribute the novels, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the so-called golden evening of Conan Doyle's summer in August that year, 1889. That's right, golden evening. Yeah, okay, Um, so Holmes is popular now. Um, He was well-received after a study in Scarlet, but certainly not a household name, because uh, Beaton's Christmas Annual, in which it was published originally, was, while a popular thing, full of stories by different authors and Conan Doyle didn't get a heavy paycheck for uh, studying Scarlet but things changed a little bit here or sorry most recently with the sign of four and after the release of that text in both Britain and America a lot more people were paying attention to Conan Doyle's skills as a writer and interest in the Holmes character because he was very offbeat um, when he came onto the scene and particularly his characteristic foibles which we'll talk about again today it's probably going to be in every part of our episode the foibles of the literary character and his idiosyncrasies really really turned people to i think uh, turned them on to a character not just with exceptional logic skills and powers of observation and deduction but also very um bespoke strange uh, curiosities, I guess, is the best way to say it. Yes, kind of a re- he has a relishment. Uh, he relishes in the absurd because everything else bores him. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's a better way to say it. You're right. Um, and there's been a, there, there's a good conversation they, that they they both kind of have Watson and, and and Holmes have in the third story uh, of the Avengers of, that was published uh, that we'll get into uh, a case of identity at the very beginning of that story, if you recall. There's a great discussion between Watson and uh, Sherlock about, you know, the, how to find its, I guess it's the unpredictability of, of, of life itself and, and, and not seeing everything on the surface, you know, and, mm-hmm. and try, try to find excitement from what is, what, what can be derived from the unknown, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, we we got three stories to get through. Uh, we don't need to reintroduce our whole series. I think we've done a good enough job now in the first 10, 12 minutes reminding people uh, how we're doing it and why we're doing it. And uh, Once again, I'm Bowman Scott over here in Dumfries, uh, Scotland, and uh, my counterpart, the BFG, is talking to us from Canada, Ontario. So uh, we got a uh, an international broadcast here today. And every day, and the, and the next day, and the next day, and the next Always day. Always international, that's right. Always international. Well, look, let's start then by talking about the adventures of Sherlock Holmes and the Strand Magazine. I got some information on the publication, and then Josh is going to rock us with a few good plot summaries. Um, first of all, October 1892 is when the adventures of Sherlock Holmes, as they're now kind of branded together, uh, became became known and, and were collected out there for, for an audience. Um, published by George News Limited, 
The first 12 short stories featured in the Strand magazine between June of 1891 and July of 1892. So in just over a year, so about 13 months, we've got 12 stories. Now you don't need to be a super mathematician to average that out. It's about a story a month that Conan Doyle is shunting out here. Um, so it's kind of like how like when I was younger and you know you anticipate the next issue of, of your favorite comic book. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. You're waiting for a new edition of your comic book or, or something like that. Uh, Scandal in Bohemia, the first story written uh, in July 1891. Then The Red-Headed League or The Adventures of the Red-Headed League, depending on your publication and, and uh, indeed what edition you got, was August of 1891. And September of 1891, A Case of Identity. And those are the three that we're going to be looking at today. Uh, the Strand Magazine, in which... Doyle's stories were published, um, ran from January of 1891, which is significant if you think about the adventures of Sherlock Holmes, because it tells us that they were placed in the very, very early infancy of this publication, uh, just a few months on. And it ran until March of 1950. It was founded by the same publisher, George Nunes. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. I, I might not be. Maybe it's Nunes. I'm, I'm not sure. But N-E-W-N-E-S. Um, the, the Strand Magazine was one of a number of publications that was set and created to appease the appetite of the Victorian uh, readers because, of course, with the advent of the printing press and the promulgation of, of literature um, within and without the country, people were reading more. Literacy was becoming developed. And while not everything in the Strand Magazine was of, the, um, <clears throat> was of a sophisticated nature, um, oh, sorry, correction. While not everything that was being published within London was of a sophisticated nature for, uh, if I can risk Definitely it, not. a highbrow audience, um, yes. the Strand magazine prided itself on, you know, uh, on attracting a readership that liked a challenge, that liked to, f uh, to share good stories, and it was full of not just short fiction, but general interest articles. Uh, it was revived, as I was interested to learn this, it was revived in 1998 as a quarterly magazine. And indeed, it's still you can still get uh, copies of it available. Oh, um, interesting. So it's more of a, it was more of a Reader's Digest than a New Yorker, I guess you're saying. Um, I think that's what I'm saying, yes. And the reason I'm hesitating to answer straight out is because, you know, having not been there and really aware of how these things were, were taken... Uh, I mean, it had a diverse readership, that much I can tell you. But, yeah, I think it was probably more along the lines of, well, I don't know, Reader's Digest now is quite quite trashy, isn't it? I don't mean trashy like celebrity trashy, but, you know, it's, it's quite cheap. Yeah, I, 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 it's kitschy. I, I would definitely say that, um, if, I guess if you look at the, the audience for Sherlock Holmes, I dare say it was probably like a middle class or what was considered the middle class then to an upper class kind of audience, right? Because you had to deal with people who were literate uh -huh. as well. Uh -huh. So, and that's and I think the character itself, you know, because I know even then that like back then, like there were people who wrote about like cowboys and Indians and then published stories in both in the United States and in Europe about those kind of adventures, and they were very popular amongst young boys and 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 whatnot, but. I think Sherlock Holmes seems to me like he would be maybe he'd be more of an upper class sort of hero. Mm -hmm. And he was everything. Well, most of most every source that I consulted in in my my research seemed to suggest that those were the types of people that were reading 
uh, the Strand magazine. But I'm going to give you some figures in a moment that might contradict that a little bit. Initi- okay. Initially, the Strand sold three, uh, sorry, 300,000 copies. And although London's a big city, that's still a very big part of the, you know, 1890, that, uh, 1891, that, that's a lot of people. And yes. into the 1930s, it settled into a circulation run of about 500,000. So I can't feel as though everybody who's reading The Strand is of a middle to upper class nature. No. But I, I there was probably a, a, a variety of different viewpoints. You could, you could probably get in that magazine, right? So yeah. it probably skewed kind of like a lower middle class to upper to maybe upper class, or maybe upper class people just picked it up just for Sherlock Holmes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm going to shed a little bit more light on this now. Um, I've kind of been holding back a little bit on this readership. It was named, the magazine, named after its Westminster location, which might give you a hint about the type of people who were featured in it or who like to read it. Uh, Lawyers, politicians? Yeah, that's where its offices were, were located uh, on the Strand. And other writers featured in the magazine in these early days and into the early 1900s included H.G. Wells, mm. Rubyard Kipling, Agatha Christie, mm-hmm. P.G. P. Wodehouse, Winston Churchill, and Queen Victoria herself even published a sketch in the magazine. A sketch. Yeah. Now, some of that, some of this information initially came from Wikipedia, but I did a little bit of looking online into a couple of other sources, and it's really an interesting story. Particularly, well, I got another thing as well to tell you. And it, you know, you know the way you do research, right? Like you're looking at something specific, and then you find out there's a more interesting story, so you follow that one, and way leads on to way, and yes. as, as Robert Frost would say, and then before you know it, you're onto something completely different. Well, something I discovered is that the Strand was now also... for something completely different. <laughs> well, kinda, yeah. Um, the Strand was also really well regarded for its brain teasers. Okay. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there, it had a regular column that was called Perplexities that was first written by this guy named Henry Dudney, and yeah, that's his real name, Dudney, D-U-D-E-N-E-Y. He was an. Did they author. call him the Dudney? I guess. Yeah, he was an author, uh, a mathematician known for the, his puzzles and games. And if you check out the stuff that was in this, like the stuff that he did in Perplexities, you can find everything that was published in the Strand on the Project Gutenberg website. You know, online. Oh, check. I know Project Gutenberg. <laughs> I know that's you the do. only time. It's the only thing. That's my only solace during my uh, between my call. Well, do yourself a favor, okay? Next time you're working and you can't access an actual book because your fascist bosses don't let you. Um, Check out Project Gutenberg. Look up Perplexities by Henry Dudney, and those are the types oh. of puzzles. Those are the types of puzzles and brain teasers. And we're talking like pretty sophisticated word problems, right? With like little, you know, you know the classic: a train leaves oh. this station at three o'clock, traveling this uh, this this speed, and a train leaves that station. At what point will they intersect? That type of shit. It's like that. That won't only do. More and a? more and more complica- complex. It's quite cool. I was gonna say that's a nice recommendation, but that won't do because a, too much mental work. B, that we don't control what Gutenberg presses. It's uploaded to our to our to our SharePoint page, like our our company work page. So we're we're not controlling what text that we can access. Only the one that they update, like every couple of months. 
what seriously you can't access everything that's on there so like what if, if there's some sort of like if there's some fundamentalist christian oh, we're in, char- in charge right? of your in charge of your uh, your department they might like block you from reading lady chatterley's lover or something oh no it's not like that it's it's the, what it is is basically is is that the stories are uploaded by 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 someone in in like the it department uh who's 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 specialized for i don't know for company resources Sources or something like that, and they upload it from Gutenberg and then upload it onto our download. Sorry, download it from Gutenberg and then upload it onto our server uh, with our main. I guess you call it SharePoint, which is this, uh, I don't know if anyone knows what SharePoint is, but it's basically a, a, a program that people design for company website for employee websites. So if you you know like where you go on to your main screen and you have like your notifications for the day what things aren't working what things are working it has all of like your your charts and tables that you need to refer to that sort of stuff mm-hmm. that's yeah. sharepoint and part of that is there's links for online reading that they provide us and these are all up, these are all downloaded from gutenberg press but it's no way you're accessing the gutenberg press servers only just 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 the pdf files that they uploaded from there you see, I find that really interesting because there's a decision being made somewhere in that corporate, uh, con- you know, that, that, that corporate system to uh, allow or withhold s- certain things. Or is it just random willy nilly? Like, here's a few. It's very, it's very, things. it's very hodgepodge. Okay. Uh, so you're telling me there's like no, there's, there's no, there's no there's 1984 for- censorship thing going on here. No, no 1984 actually is, uh, was, was added recently. Um, <laughs> okay. But, um, all the Sherlock Holmes stories are there, except the the except the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Actually, that's the only one that's missing there. There's two links for the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, and I think that's what happened is that they downloaded the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes twice and thought they had them all, but I guess they were wrong about that. I guess so. Anyway, look, man. Next time you're um, next time you're at work, get yourself uh, on there and see if. Well, I guess you'd you'd have to request it, <laughs> but see if any of Dudney's perplexities are there. Uh, I'm not doing them justice with my crap descriptions, but they're really nicely illustrated as well. A lot of these um, these these brain teasers, and it's worth a look. I think they're cool. But I'll take a look at them that's for the type sure. Of stuff, the type of stuff just, that was in the Strand magazine. To go back to our own to our own little world here, that uh, there is one James Bond novel on there though. Oh, which one? Goldfinger. Hmm. I wonder why Goldfinger. That's the only James Bond story they've had there, and that was like two years ago, and that they haven't updated it since. Strange. Yeah. Perhaps someone complained or something that it was too uh, erotic or something. I have no idea. Huh. Well, are all of Fleming's... It did not, it did not match the sensibilities to, to, some, to, to someone, perhaps. Are all of Fleming's uh, works now beyond copyright? I think they are now, yes, because I know that, like, uh, uh, for example, Indigo's chapters here in Canada, they have uh, their own line, uh, as I told you, of the, of the Fleming novels. Mm. And uh, in fact, there is like, like some filmmaker in, in Ottawa, who B-movie filmmaker, who wants to make the Bond, uh, the, one of the Bond novels into, a, uh, into, into a, a, a movie. And apparently you can because of the copyright law. Yeah, that's the uh, For Your Eyes Only short story, right? That's correct, yes. Anyway, enough of that. Um, that's, that's just some publication information. Sorry for the diversions, but uh, that's the Strand Magazine, at least up to where we're going to be. 
looking at it in 1891, 1892. The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, uh, yeah, was pretty popular. Uh, it went well, and it continues to sell today, obviously, for all the reasons we cited earlier and the popularity of the character and as many different um, uh, forms in pop culture. And that's that. You want to jump straight into the first short story? Yeah, let's get into the scandal in Bohemia. So our good John Watson has been married for a few years now. He and Cher, as I like to call him on our last outline that I did. Cher, yeah. <laughs> Do you, you know, believe this one, like a... in life after love? Exactly. And you can stop that now. Have gone their own separate ways. So yes, Cher and, Cher and Watson have gone their own separate ways. While calling on a patient... <coughs> bored out of his tree, Watson heads down to Baker Street to see what the Wacky Holmes is up to. Yet he's still there. Is it, he's still there. Standing in the window like a, like a crime-solving freak that he is. Watson says, hey, Sherlock is surprised that he's not fat and oh, oh, by the way, there's a case. Come join me. And so a bohemian count shows up. Is that like the count from Sesame Street only speaking in beat poetry? I don't know. <laughs> It's like Count Gins von Kram is his name. With a cape. Ginsburg, yeah, Count von Ginsburg. <laughs> Count von Kram, I guess, in this case here. Uh, yeah, von Kram is his name. He's wearing a mask and so dressed to the nines that he would not have lasted long in revolutionary France. But Holmes sees through his disguise. Nope, this, my dear Watson, is the king of Bohemia. This is King Willem, or Willie, as I will call him from now on. Uh... I, just to uh, King Willem, by the way, is a short form for Willem Gottreich Sigismund von Olmstein, Grand Duke of Castle Felstein and Hereditary King of Bohemia. So I call him Willy. Were you looking for applause there? Sorry if I missed my beat. No, not, not applause at all. Okay. Anyway, King Willie is really cheesed off. You see, he's bumping uglies with an adventurous slash prospective gold digger named Irina Adler. She is blackmailing him with a dirty photograph of the two of them discovering new ways of utilizing pastries and desserts. <laughs> Adler's game? Stay with me or I show you a love of how to apply fondue to your Scandinavian princess uh, you plan to marry. The minute they announce your engagement, I'm going to send the, I'm going to send the photo and uh, curtains are going to be falling on that relationship and that political alliance. So to save the course of Western civilization, Cher's mission, if he chooses to accept it, recover the photograph from this femme fatale. Holmes checks out Adler's residence, Bryony Lodge, in St. John's Wood, disguised as a groomsman. Incognito, he gathers intel throughout the day, getting a good look at the house, getting a good look at Adler, a particularly good look at Adler, and her lawyer, Jeff Godfrey Norton. Adler have already been robbed by the king's cronies and a failed attempt to obtain the photograph has indeed brought in the big guns. But then again, so is the king. But a sudden plot twist appears. Norton and Adler head out in a carriage and Sherlock plays follow that cab all the way to St. Monica's church wherein Holmes, once a groomsman, is mistaken for a clergyman, has uh, become the literal groomsman for Norton, who is marrying Irene Adler. What? This is a very unexpected the turn of affairs, says Watson. Well, no shit, Cher. I mean, Watson. So after telling all this to Watson, Cher has a power meal of beef and beer thanks to Mrs. Hudson slash Turner, 
Make up your mind, ACD. He gives Johnny Boy a plumber a plumber's smoke rock, rock, rocket. Because science. Actually, he gives Watson implicit instructions on what to do with the incendiary. And Holmes, in his annoying fashion, when Watson is at a loss at how his plan B will reveal to him where Irene is, hi- is keeping Elizabeth photograph. So the dynamic duo head out to Bryony Lodge, taking advantage of a scuffle between the groomsmen when Adler arrives in her carriage. Holmes gets the crud beat out of him when he runs in. Adler is a sweet girl, though, and it seems, as she, as, as so it seems, because she brings the injured Holmes into the house. Meanwhile, Watson perfect Holmes in a key that he needs air, signals the maid to open the window, and Watson, either following Shira's orders or suddenly believing he is the Victorian heir of Bart Simpson, throws a smoke bomb into the gap made by the window. Smoke rises, fire burns, people scream, commotion, and all through all this, Holmes finds out where the photo is. Returning back to the scene of Watson's boyish hijinks, the maid answers the door. Irene finds out where the photo is. Sorry. My bad. I have to recheck my notes sometime. Uh, Holmes finds out where the photo is, and Irene, and Irene in the letter left to him, re- re- reveals so. For she has left a note. Oh, you've been played, Holmes. Well, not really. Irene was on him from the get-go. The photo is still with her, of course, but she's actually happy with her lawyer, and they bolted to the continent. The king is like, whatevs. He wants her even more now, probably. And so we learn that Adler was the love of Shara's life. And given his track record, I am being completely sincere. That's essentially my summary of a scandal in Bohemia without going into any insane details that you can read in the 20 pages that that comprises of it, so... And that will probably flesh out now in the next 20 minutes or so. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, the whole reason, yeah, the whole reason, one thing, one question I think the mystery was, where was the photograph in the first place? Well, Holmes had this, says this whole theory about how, you know, during certain, during a fire, uh, mothers would go find their, 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 their children, husbands would go find their wives or the closest things to them. And he found out where Adler's photograph was just on the basis of Watson's smoke bomb. You did you like that development? Pardon? Did you like that development? I found it sort of somewhat almost pedestrian in a way, actually. But at the same time, Holmes wouldn't be above using the pedestrian if it fit his needs, right? No, no, he wouldn't. Um, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just thinking about this uh, this King of Bohemia. I mean, do you, do you want to start there? How do you want to how do you want to roll with this? You want to. Um... Just kind of. What do you have to say about the king of the, the king of Bohemia and his mask and his square jaw and his and his mannerisms and his love of fondue? I take the pictures of fondue. I've I've got a lot of opinion about him. He's <laughs> he's he's more than he's more than a little bit of a of a stereotype. Um, <laughs> I think any and I also think he would be more than a little of a stereotype back then as well. You know. Yeah, Count von Ginsburg. Count von Ginsburg, indeed. Yeah. Um, why don't we why don't we get into this properly here then, okay? And uh, and really start to talk about this mystery. All right, let's talk about the mystery. So, do you want to uh, should, we, should, we, should, should should we just kind of break everything down now, or or do you, do you have anything you want to bring up in the first place to sort of expand? Um, no, I think I think maybe we we can just light our pipes and, and go through it that way. 
Yeah. Just to give some information, though, I think is important. Uh, bohemia, because, you know, when you think of the term bohemian, you think it's sort of like an unconventional um, way of, 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 of lifestyle and attitude, you know, outside of the regular norms, right? Like very bohemian, laissez-faire. These are terms we're, we're, we're familiar with, right? Yep. The, the, the word bohemian, bohemian rhapsody. Yeah, Bohemian so. like you by the Dandy Warhols to give an uh, to give a more modern example. All right, but during uh, during the time of this, right? I mean, still today, Bohemia and the Kingdom of Bohemia related largely to the biggest province of what's now the Czech Republic, uh, Prague yes. being the center of that area. So, uh, the I, Kingdom I mean, of Moravia. Mm, that's that's how we've got Bohemia understood in the story, and. Um, Yes. I mean, do, do anything else you want to say about that, or can we just light these pipes and start our chat? No, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, Bohemia, very important part of the of of uh, European history in terms of like Central Germany and uh, going in even over to the Eastern lands, like the Sudeten land and uh, and particularly the the lands of the of the, of the Czechs. Um, by Germany, I don't mean like the country Germany. I'm talking about the overall region of that whole region. If you if you catch my drift, Germany, Austria, Czechoslovakia. That, or Czech Republic as it's known today. Is it called Czechoslovakia today, or is it just the Czech Republic again now? Since the fall, the, since the fall the, of the Czech Soviet Republic. The, yeah, because the Soviet Union fell, so it's so it's the Czech Republic now, right? Yeah, right. Look, yeah. Um, you're forgetting the important thing here. We got to do. I'm sitting here with a pipe in my mouth, ready to light it, and you just keep prattling on. Are you ready to light these pipes or what? All right, I'll grab my tobacco and I'll light the freaking pipe. Three pipe problem. Oh, some goodbye. Right. <clears throat> old Toby. <laughs> Good old Toby. You've said that now three episodes in a row. It's the yeah. It's 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 the. I guess it's the. Uh, what is? I guess you call it the um, ingrained fantasy fan in me. Mm, well. The King of Bohemia, <clears throat> I would like, if uh, you'll indulge me for a moment, to, uh, to to share a little bit from the beginning of this story before that uh, king king shows up. Are you, you cool with that? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I do want to mention, though, you might find this interesting about Bohemia, is they, they descended originally, I guess the first people of that region were of the Boyoi, uh, which if you recall is a Celto-Germanic tribe. Um, which they played a that which played a part in Julius Caesar's campaign in Germania in 58 BC. They they were one, one of those German tri tribes that were causing a lot of problems across the Rhine. Remember when he had to build that bridge of uh, of of ships or whatever so he could cross the Rhine and mm. keep the Germans off the land? Yeah, like the Teutons or the Kimbri or however you pronounce them. Well, the Teutons and Kimbri were sort of Uncle Mar Marius's. Yeah, they uh, were Marians, weren't they? Marian and Solus. Yeah, but. But this is one of this is one of those campaigns that Caesar undertook that the Roman state did not give him approval for, and therefore was pretty much fuel for treason ch ch charges by the Optimates, right? So, anyways, we're going to kind of our own personal sidebar. We do have a bit of a fascination with Roman history and classical history surrounding that. So that was a bit of a divergent there. But I just thought my friend would like to know in general that. The King of Bohemia is where the Boyoi were originally uh, from. I appreciate that. It's uh, giving me a yeah. brand new way to read the story. Exactly. And not only that, lots of migration of Celtic tribes 
has occurred in this area over the centuries to follow. In the 6th century AD, Slavic tribes from the east settled into these lands, and these are the descendants of the modern-day Czechs. Moving up into uh, what was essentially known as the, um, the High Middle Ages, I guess you would call it, uh, Bohemia was made part of the early Slavic state of, greater, of Great Moravia. However, nomadic invasions weakened along, with eternal stri- weakened along with eternal strife, it began to kind of fall apart, especially when the Magyars, as a principal invader, came in and, and caused a lot of chaos there. But their people were not assimilated um, to be, by the Magyars. Instead, the, the Moravian Empire brought Bohemian into its embrace, and they Christianized the majority of the population. And this is kind of the beginning of what's known as the pre-Mistal dynasty. And this lasts all the way up until the 1300s with the Luxembourg dynasty, where you have John I of Bohemia, who was crowned in 1310. His son Charles IV in 1346 founded Charles University in Prague and the Luxembourg dynasty, as it was called. His reign was a triumph, pretty much. The kingdom was at its height, and because of its political coverage, Charles IV was the first uh, Bohemian to become Holy Roman Emperor. He, re- he reigned over Moravia, Silesia, Upper Lusatia, and Lower Lusatia, Brandenburg, and an area around Nuremberg called New Bohemia, as well as Luxembourg, of course, and several small towns that were in, in, in that area. Then there was this whole religious thing called the Hussite Uprising, where the, the, uh, the, a, couple hundred, a couple hundred years later, uh, Archduke Ferdinand of Austria Austria absorbed Bohemia into Austria, Austrian Empire and became a vassal kingdom of the Habsburg dynasty. But Bo- Bo- Bohemian, uh, Bohemia enjoyed a religious freedom during this time, between 1436 and 1620, where very liberal, almost like an Italian city-state. You could be Christian, you could be, you could be Catholic, sorry, you could be Protestant. It didn't make a difference. It was a very, very liberal time. And uh, I guess that's where the term Bohemian really came from. Well, I'm a better man for having sat through that lecture. Yeah, and uh, it was yeah, it was essentially one of the most liberal countries of the Christian world during that period. And do you know um, what the biggest, uh, or at least the most, um, yeah, I think it's also the biggest, uh, the most decorative celebrated bridge in Prague is called? Bohemian Bridge? No, no, sir. It is the Charles Bridge. Oh, that makes sense then. Mm, yeah, beautiful place, the Charles Bridge. You've been to Prague, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I went there for our honeymoon before we went to Venice. That's right. I remember that now. Oh, yes. Uh, Venice, which you did not enjoy as much as Prague. I I enjoy both places very much, but um, I think... Weren't you ill in in Venice? I was ill in Prague. But the fact that... Oh, yeah. Christmas Day... Christmas. Oh, it was miserable. Terrible. Some sort of a fever, and it was brutal. But, um, yeah, I couldn't taste anything. Couldn't really smell anything um, if you were so a romantic had, poet, had all these really expensive you, restaurants booked and i ended up going anyway and all these beautiful dishes sarah enjoyed herself i couldn't taste a fucking thing but um anyway whatever the things you do for love huh yeah things you do for love indeed uh, but um yeah so this uh religion religious freedom in bohemia kind of lasted up until the 30 years war as it was called when the emperor matthias ii and ferdinand ii of bohemia they pressed the rights of the Protestants, and this led to what was uh, known as the Bohemian Revolt, and then to the Thirty Years' War in 1618. Uh, eventually, Bohemia becomes absorbed by the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the 18th century. In the 1860s, there was sort of a nationalist movement. It's very romantic, swept through Bohemia. And while they're under the diet, uh, 
which is kind of like a set of governments that was set by the Australian-Hungarian Empire. A new diet was formed in 1861 with a very romantic, as I mentioned, nationalist kind of attitude towards Bohemia. And the Bohemian crown was renewed at this time, and this was 1860. So this would have been a time around when King Willie was born. So you get an idea of the situation that King Willem is in uh, when he comes to Sherlock Holmes' door. I do. You know what, Josh? Um, listening to your brief history on Bohemia, I think it's only fitting, and I hope you will indulge me of this, uh, I think it's only fitting that I play one of Bohemia's best composers, modern-day Czech Republic composers, uh, Antonin Dvorak. I want to play, in celebration of your wonderfully concise history, uh, a Slavonic dance. Does that seem fitting? I think so. Let's go. Let's, let's go into a Slavonic dance. You can picture now King Willem accompanied to this music as Count von Kram, Flash von Ginsburg, dressed with his mask and his astrakhan cloak. And uh, you get an idea of his, of his character just in his music, I think. Yeah, anyway, that's enough of that. Um, I've actually got a better piece. Well, no, not a better piece. A different piece of music selected to represent this story. And we'll do that. But look, it's, it's time for me uh, to get to where I wanted to get uh, about eight minutes ago before that impromptu history lesson. For which, by the way, I'm eternally grateful. I don't mean to sound that I'm not. You don't sound but, like it. You don't sound oh, like it at all, actually. You, <laughs> You know me, buddy. You know me. I'm, I'm always, always willing to lend an ear and, and allow one a soapbox on which to stand and, and profess their knowledge in European history. Very well. Well, I just hope our audiences back home appreciated a little background there. Well, I did. I did appreciate it. Unless, and upon unless they, unless they think King Willem was just some sort of like hipster you run into a record store who likes the uh, shins and uh, doesn't eat uh, doesn't eat meat or something like that. And wears hemp trousers. Yes, hemp trousers or yeah. shorts and in cold weather. Indeed. Uh, look, this story. I, I want to talk about the beginning of it. Okay, we're lighting our pipes, and this is kind of talking about the way it was written, right? The investigation itself. But I, I find it very interesting that um, after two novels introducing his character as really a legend of deduction and almost superhuman. And indeed, in the first paragraph here, Watson describes uh, Holmes as, quote, the most perfect reasoning and observing machine that the world has seen. And I think that's important because this story is a story wherein Holmes loses. And I think it's really interesting. You've got a writer who's immediately moving into a new form with short stories and giving us in his very first of 56 short stories a failure. I mean, I don't know how you read that from a a writing perspective, but it seems to me that from the very beginning, and this is something that's going to haunt Conan Doyle, you know, throughout his career with Holmes, from the very beginning, he's, he's not comfortable only having a successful Holmes, only having something that the readers are going to get a happy ending with like he wants to change it he wants to tinker it and one of the one of the things that's come out of that's come out of the, the publication reviews oh and i forgot to do the reviews uh the reviews of this is a quote from um an 1892 uh <clears throat> no correction uh, the hampshire telegraph in 1892 on the adventures of sherlock holmes says that 
quote, an author who wishes to make literature pay must write what his readers want, end quote. Now, that is a very telling thing because, as we know popularly, and we're going to get into in this series, Conan Doyle kills off his Holmes character because he's done with him. He doesn't want to do anymore. But he continued to bring him back. It did it at least twice for the sake of his readership because they were paying a lot of money to read his stories. And here, yes. at, the, here at the beginning... I, I'm I'm, not, I'm failing, I think, to stitch all of these points together. But at at the, time, at the time we've got the pastiche. Yeah, at the time we've got um, the Hampshire Telegraph kind of lamenting the fact that some of his better writing isn't noticed as much as the Sherlock Holmes. But if he wants to make money at it, he's got to write Sherlock Holmes. This is only 1892, remember? And here, in the very first short story, we have evidence. I think in terms of narrative structure or at least characterization of Conan Doyle wanting this character not to be perfect and wanting to do something different with it. But obviously the readers didn't like that as much. While this story has remained popular, it's remained popular more for the Irene Adler thing uh, yes. than, than really the fact that Holmes failed in his mission. Like, like how many incarnations of Irene Adler like exist, you know, in, 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 in the popular mythos of Sherlock Holmes nowadays? Yeah. Like, if, 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 you, if you read the story, I mean, I, I would say, yes, Iron Adler does make an impression as one outsmarted Holmes, the woman who does who did this, but they kind of make them almost star-crossed lovers in some adaptations, you know what I mean? So Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, um, and that's silly, isn't it? Well, she's, I guess she's kind of like a proto-femme fatale, I guess, you, that you would have saw like in the, in the noirs, you know, of the 30s and whatnot. The beginning of the story... Uh, makes it very clear that this woman, Irene Adler, uh, has a big effect on Holmes as a character. Well, um, through Watson's declaration. Yeah, the very first sentence, to Sherlock Holmes, she is always the woman. I've seldom the heard woman. him mention her under any other name. In his eyes, she eclipses and predominates the whole of her sex. It was not that he felt any emotion akin to love for Irene Adler. But, um, yeah, I'm just trying to skip down here. Uh, da, da, da. She found the chink in his. She found the chink in his armor, or something, yeah. or uh, mm -hmm. it's 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 because you don't want to use some sort of overly like sexual thing about, or you know, romantic thing about it, because I don't think it was that in Holmes's case. No, I agree with you. I don't, I don't think it was either. I think that he saw in her a cleverness and a resourcefulness that won him, or that won her opportunities and advantages that you know he he wasn't quick enough to 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 perceive. Um, I kind of like how he kind of, in the end, you kind of got the impression that he affected her not for her sex, but for as an individual. Yes, I think so. But, you know, how much and how sure can we really be? There may have been something, there may have been something romantic there that Holmes just, because of his high functioning autism, couldn't, or Asperger's or whatever you want to call it, couldn't, uh, couldn't really articulate or couldn't realize. Possibly. Or he could make the, or he didn't want to make that connection. Oh, that's an interesting point. What do you mean he didn't want to make the connection? Or just ignored the, or just ignored those. Like I, I think there's probably an aspect of his character that's very stoic. You know, where in the sense where certain desires that that he feels, you know, that are human, and you know that you know that are inherently human, he probably suppresses them, in for, for you know because they get in the way of doing his work. If you catch my drift. Yeah. Okay. I got you now. I understand what you mean. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, look, principles. P, the first letter in our acronym of PIPES. 
I like Holmes and Watson here in this adventure. I think they work well mm-hmm. together. They've got they've got some interesting exchange, um, and we've got a a pretty fun exchange when Watson goes to visit Holmes and they kind of have their catch up. Uh, Watson acknowledges that he hasn't seen much of his pal because marriage is kind of uh, marriage and home ownership; those two things have kind of uh, sidetracked his attention a little bit, and his. Well, as he says, his own happiness has been completely wrapped up in this this new world of marriage and and the responsibilities um, of being now a family man and a, a woman and a, a man who has a kept woman as such. But he seems okay dropping those for every other fucking adventure he'll ever do. Like <laughs> I, fi- I find it kind of ironic that you know here in the as I said, story, he's born out of his tree. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Anyway. Um, Holmes gets Watson he, he, hooked he, he, pretty he, early he, in the story. He, yeah, he gets hooked on he gets hooked on the case. It's like it's kind of I find that like Watson is kind of addicted to adventure, while Holmes isn't really addicted to anything. He just indulges to his passion, does what he does. But there's definitely you know they accuse Sherlock Holmes of being like a of a of, a, of an addict because of his cocaine or heroin use. But really, Watson is addicted to to the excitement, to the adventure. He misses that. Yeah, that's true. Not a lot. We haven't said a lot yet about about uh, Watson's addictions, have we? Yeah, it's almost like he's going out for an affair, almost in a way. You know, like seeing you know Mary Morstan's back at home. You know, managing her house and her her uh, Im- her impertinent uh, maid, as 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 Sherlock Holmes figures out. Mm-hmm. And uh, meanwhile, you know, Watson's going around town solving crimes. You know, mm-hmm. I like. As well, it's and, your and perfect CBS procedural. In the previous two stories, um, and I'd like your opinion on this, just, just, just to, I guess, flesh out my own, but in the previous two novels, we see that the relationship of Holmes and Watson is getting a little stronger, um, as it's expected anyway to. But here in the story, the friendship and the trust between the two guys is, is well espoused at the beginning. This is when uh, Holmes is speaking to the king in disguise. Pray, take a seat. This is my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson, who is occasionally good enough to help me in my cases. Whom have I the honor to address? Uh, you may address me as the Count von Kram, a bohemian nobleman. I understand that this gentleman, your friend, is a man of honor and discretion, whom I may trust with a matter of the most extreme importance. If not, I should much prefer to communicate with you alone. I rose to go, but Holmes caught me by the wrist and pushed me back into my chair. It is both or none said he. You may say before this gentleman anything which you may say to me. Now, I, I like the fact that Holmes welcomes Watson into these cases, and he says he said that to, you know, everybody, really, he's dealt with so far, but I find it interesting, the, the narrative point here, that he grabs him by the wrist and pushes him back into his seat. How do you read that? It's, it, it, well, he's, it, that, to me, shows that he wants Watson to be there, that in some kind of way, that's a gesture that indicates... He misses him in some way. I just find it interesting. Instead of just saying, um, you know, he he brushed my arm or he, you know, he asked me to remain seated. He he doesn't use those words. You know, he caught me by the wrist and pushed me back into my chair. There does seem to be kind of like an and an, an, not an aggressive uh, gesture, but kind of like a controlling element to that expression. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that it, that. Um, I think there has been many kind of portrayals of Sherlock Holmes that I've seen, and a lot of them portrayed the resentment that 
Watson that Sherlock may have in terms of him abandoning Watson for Mary Morstan. And it could be kind of like now that Watson has returned back to 221B, uh, he doesn't want he doesn't want him to leave. So as soon as he's in there, he wants to snatch him right back into his world. Because as I mentioned, and, and, as, and as Conan Doyle mentions, of course, is that when Watson goes down Baker Street just to go see what Holmes is up to, there he is in the windows, mm. pacing around, you know, in in thought, and already you know on another case, right? So mm-hmm. as soon as Watson comes up the stairs, something triggers in, in in Holmes in the sense that we're back into the way that things were, and he's just able to to cue everything back into place again that old rhythm returns right yeah so and but i think he's very addicted or controlling to that rhythm but he doesn't want to lose it so so perhaps there is a bit of a gesture of of uh impatience and also just of don't go you know and yeah it's it's interesting it's it's an interesting development because i think you really need to to look at a lot of uh of, I guess papers that have been written on the case of the relationship of Holmes and Watson, a lot of it dealing with also the possible homosexual undertones to their character and and that are be- that are bound to come up in the modern day. So yeah, and I'm not necessarily wanting to go there. Certainly not in the first short story, having only such a uh, a minority of the works discussed. Yeah, word of advice for the funny. like I, I'm, I'm stay away of it. from uh, Watson Holmes fan fiction. Well, I certainly will be. Um, not, that I have, not, <laughs> not, not that I got any problem with it. Uh, I just want to read the source material first before I get into any slash. Oh, well, that and the majority of them are written. I don't, I don't care about the content. It's that they're, they're written terribly. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> okay, well, hey, I wouldn't know. Um, moving on. Look, I, I, you know what? This, this is interesting, okay? Like, you've already said it. I'm not going to go into much more detail about it, but... Holmes and Watson kind of work together. Holmes is in disguise a couple times here. He uses no, he's in yeah, he's in disguise a couple times. He gets Watson involved in this, and I like Watson's involvement in the story. I found it a little more interesting than just kind of witnessing and writing about it from the sidewalk, like a street reporter, you know, or like what or like the Daily Planet, Jimmy, you know. I, I kind of found it a little more interesting. Um, in fact, yeah, he. he, he... Sorry, takes go- active part in what's going on, you know exactly. Yeah, he does. He he has more. He has more. He's dragged, kind of right. He's dragged. You know, they think about it. He he was in town calling on a patient, and he walks in, and okay, so now I'm dealing with some scandal with a, a you know with a European king and his and his mistress and all this intrigue going on, and Holmes is like the same old Holmes, or is he? I don't know, but this is kind of interesting. And now I have to throw a smoke bomb through a window and cause yeah. a fire. And, oh, I feel yeah. so terrible. This maid and this yeah. Miss Adler is so nice to Holmes. I feel such like a, a jerk doing this. Like all his whole state of mind through the entire thing. You know what I mean? Totally. He's being kind of just pushed along by Holmes each step of the way. But I, how he reacts to it to me is, is doesn't feel like an observer, but someone who is just sort of like going along with the flow. You know what yeah. I mean? Totally. I, I feel like uh, the, the fleshing out of both of these characters works really well here in the story following the two novels where I felt that, you know, they were still trying or Conan Doyle was still trying to find kind of how this partnership was going to work. It feels a lot more comfortable here in the short fiction um, format. I like that Holmes as well feels to me while he's still arrogant, he feels more generous with his time, or he comes across on the page as more generous with his time here towards Watson. And he, he actually says, as he will in another story in a few moments, well, he, misses him. He, he says that, you know, he's done well in learning a little bit, because he, he does these little tests, right, of like, well, what did you make of that, Watson? And he says, oh, you've missed all the important details, but you're getting better, like that type of stuff. And <laughs> I um, love that. that, that... I, I just, 
I, I, I kind of felt like, and I made this note here on the margin of my page, and I'm going to finish with my principal score now in a minute, but to me, there's like this Batman and Robin feel to this one. Like Watson is riding sidecar to the bat bike. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, even, exactly. And he even tosses, like he even tosses a bat bomb right through the window. To, the bat to bomb the smoke. the window, yeah, exactly. So I, I kind of like these guys. I, I wouldn't have wanted, and because there was a bit more depth to them, uh, fleshed out a bit in their character relationships, I went full marks for principles, and I know I might regret that later, but I I haven't regretted it yet, and I went five out of five because in this short story, for what I wanted from this short story, I had agency from both characters, there was involvement uh, with one another, there was good banter between the two of them, and there was a little more character development to give me a sense of personality. I liked it. I went full marks, and you know how I feel about full marks, so I went five out of five. For the P. Oh, as did I, uh, to oh, be honest cool. with you. Everything right. that you brought up, I totally agree with. Um, I found that uh, Sherlock was, was was at high form. I did like the mention about him, you know, th- you know him throwing Watson down in the chair uh, very, very brusquely, you know. Like, there was an impatience and also a neediness to his character that he was glad to have Watson back, and you could see that. Um he was. It was almost like Holmes was just so giddy through this whole story, and I, maybe because he was glad that his old relationship was was returning with Watson, that maybe that's a possibility that this has somehow made him miss the cues that he needed for to, to notice Irene Adler's deception, because um, mm-hmm. she was on on Holmes the moment that he arrived. You know what I mean? So yes, yeah, she was on him the whole time. Even heard himself going in, going into disguise. So. I, I, the principles worked very well, and uh, Watson, as I said, he flowed along um, with, with, with the story very well and took part in it, and he was aghast at some things and clueless on some. He put up with Holmes's condescension, even though it's kind of a harmless condescension. I, I kind of think that Holmes like has that relationship with people where he wants them around, but because of his nature, he can't help but condescend, you know? like mm-hmm. It's very difficult for him not to. Yeah. So he condescends as a way as a way to becoming incredibly as avoiding to become incredibly arrogant and off-putting, er, off-puttingly arrogant. If, if you catch my drift. I do indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the investigation. He condescends with 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 love. <laughs> if that's indeed possible, I suppose it is. Yeah. Given. Yeah. 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 I can see that he condescends with love. Um, the investigation. Um, I'm not going to. I mean, I like little touches that Conan Doyle puts in here, like into the plot, the fact that the king is staying at the Langham Hotel, which is another reference autobiographically to that golden evening where he was given the commission for the sign of the four. I like that. I think that's cool. Um, mm-hmm. And there are other and where, bits. And where Captain Morstan uh, was, was supposed to meet Mary yeah. in the sign of four. That's right. Um, I like the disguise. I like the idea of blackmail. The fire bluff is interesting. There's some witty repartee here written into the investigation. Holmes is on good form. Uh, it's it's good stuff, nicely written. Although uh, <clears throat> I can't give it full marks because, in terms of a narrative investigation, this investigation would have sorted itself out anyway serendipitously once Irene married. So it's kind of a frustratingly empty sort of closure. Like although Holmes didn't score a win, true. Like the investigation would have sorted itself out because she was never actually going to black- blackmail the king. Definitely, that's, that's definitely true. It would have been solve the whole problem someone made a great point about that how some stories do that where if you if you really examine like a movie or a book and if you take out the principal character does that story function without the character like does it flow through to its conclusion and the perfect example of this there's a bit of a digression but i think you'll find this interesting is raiders of the lost ark 
Yeah, if yeah. There was a whole episode on uh, about it. This whole episode of the Big Bang Theory about that. That's yeah. That's what I saw it from. I'm actually quoting Sheldon. Okay, well there you go. Yeah, but it's sorry. So I'm not trying to steal your thunder. Just... No, no, no. I, I remember reading about it, but I guess it was Sheldon that talked about it, and it made total sense to me. Yeah, we talked that, about like... it in our Bond series as well. I remember you bringing it up. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. But anyways, yeah. So the fact that like you know Indiana Jones was completely in, in essential to the entire narrative of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is one of the main reasons why some people. People don't like, uh, don't find Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, particularly people who don't care much for the film, or they find it not as great as some people do think it is, other than being a great action film, is that Indiana Jones does not really have a story arc in the in in the, uh, in, the in the story at all. Um, but, but, <laughs> but moving up, going back about uh, thirty or forty years now, we'll we'll head back to you know from Nazi Germany, we'll head back to. Uh, London, England here in uh, 1890. Oh, I do want to say this about the investigation as well. I I felt like that whole uh, witness at the wedding was kind of shoehorned in there. I didn't feel as though it was natural. Like Holmes comes back giddy and almost drunk and in disguise. I felt that was kind of silly. Like I I think there could have been a more effective way to, to, uh, of revealing that or having Holmes involved in it. It just... The, the whole desperation of them saying you'll do and whipping him off into church and I just I don't know it just felt a little too a little too whimsical for me. Yeah, it was kind of like a very coincidental kind of moment. Uh, it was almost like a bit of comic relief about the kind of Arthur Conan Doyle put in the story. I, I think it was very whimsical in that way. He was he was having fun, you could tell, in that capacity, and that he felt this was the way in which we learn that through Holmes's because per- remember. Holmes is telling this story through his perspective to Watson. Mm-hmm. So it, it's his narration. Mm-hmm. And this is how we learned that Irene Adler got married. It was there another way within the narrative and how it was put together. Could Irene Adler's marriage be known to Holmes? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it could have maybe been another way. I'm, I'm not going to, I, I'm not, I'm not going to try to sit here and waste our time up thinking of ways he could have been done. I'm just simply saying that I didn't get it a great thrill from the way it was revealed. But moving away from that, um, just a couple last points for me on narrative. I, I think it's funny that Watson's the one who ultimately would have to take the heat here, though. Like, he's the one who becomes a vandal, right? Like, he smashes windows and stuff. <laughs> like, I, I find that's quite funny because Holmes is like, um, Holmes is like, you may then walk to the end of the street. I'll rejoin you in 10 minutes. I hope I made myself clear. So... I'm to remain neutral, to get near the window, watch you, and at the signal, throw this object, and then raise a cry of fire, and wait for you on the street, <laughs> precisely. <laughs> then, so, so yeah. essentially, you could have hired like one of your Baker Street Irregulars to, to, uh, to, to, yes, to do this, yeah, you yeah. know? That's kind of weird, but anyway. Where, um, where was Wiggins at, at at this time? I don't know, I don't know. Anyway, I went uh, four out of five for the investigation on A Scandal of Bohemia. Well-written, interesting, fun to follow, but not perfect, uh, but good. So I think four out of five is reasonable. That's my score. That's my take. We haven't really disagreed much in this series yet. I wonder if we will today. No perpetrators. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Investigation, I should say. Sorry, I'm on the wrong wrong end of my pipe here. Um, uh, Yeah, get that right, buddy, or your lips are going to be burnt. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I didn't want to burn myself there. Um, too late. Uh, I'm yeah. I, I'm agree again. I'm four point five with the narrative. Like I really liked the, how the story was constructed. I liked how it was going from one perspective to the other. 
um, the whole idea of Irene leaving a letter for Holmes was a different way of showing the narrative as well and how it was done. I like the different perspectives that Arthur Conan Doyle gives besides the first person, which I think is, is and I know at the time period wasn't first person, sorry, third person omniscient, I meant to say, um, wasn't first person narration kind of big in this time period as well? Because if you look at it, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, for example, that's written as, a, as first person narration because it's done instead of diaries, correct? Yeah, it's part epistolary, like with the letter Yeah, epistolary, that's the word I was looking for. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And there's kind of a way to that to the Sherlock Holmes books, too. And there's this, it's even, I guess to use a modern term, very meta in how Watson is chronicling these stories in, in his own publications in, uh, that people are reading about. And then, of course, we're reading about it through his, in, our, in Arthur Conan Doyle's books. So it's almost like we have a merging of the real world and the fictional world. And that's a very meta, very modern form of storytelling. And uh, I, find that, I find that really interesting. And I just liked, again, the switching of perspectives. Uh, Holmes's narr- narr- Holmes narration. Uh, then we have Irene's letter. And then we have, have Watson telling the story himself. It's kind of the final final layer on top of, 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 of everything, right? Like bookending it. This is the story of, of, of how the woman came into Sherlock Holmes' life and uh, outwitted him, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of that woman... Irene Adler is, if um, you'll allow me to move on, is really the perpetrator in this story. And yes. she's clever. She she is clever. Um, there's a sense that we'd like to see her again. I mean, I, I feel that way. Um, but there's not a lot of time spent on or with her here. Like we see her, no. and we know of her, we know of her resourcefulness because of what uh, she she does and how we follow her. But she doesn't strike me. I mean. We get this info dump about her being from New Jersey and the opera singer and all that stuff at the beginning, but we don't really get a, a heck of a lot of info about her. Like I like the way you said it in your your, your plot summary that you know she she's come she comes into the story because the king's bumping his uglies with her, and we she goes out of the story bumping uglies with somebody else, and it's just. But she's in love this time, Scott. Yeah, Scott, okay. she's in love yeah, this yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, right. She's in love, and that's cool. You know, everybody can find love, but. I, I don't know. Irene Adler, for me, wasn't of enormous um, gravitational impact. She didn't draw me in and pull me down. Uh, I went 3.5 out of 4. Uh, 3.5 out of 5. I don't feel as though, although she had an impact on Holmes, she didn't have an impact so much on me. And I think that's important to, to differentiate here in, in the experience of the reader. So for me personally, interesting okay, she's cool, she's resourceful, but I didn't see enough of her, and I don't think the whole idea yes. of, of her, lack, the lack of payoff of the narrative at the end, because she wasn't going to do it anyway, is just a little bit, that is a little underwhelming, and yeah, she might have been, you know... Anticlimactic even. Anticlimactic, that's a good way of saying it. So for me, I went three out of five out of five, or out of five. A bit higher. Um, I gave uh, Irene a four as the new perpetrator. Um, I, 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 I guess for some reasons, maybe just the mystique of the Irene Adler character that exists now in popular culture. And I really think this novel, or I guess at the time when it came out, I guarantee you there were some readers out there who wanted more Irene Adler, you know, and there could have been women readers who were, in, who were reading Holmes, you know, and they could have found her a fascinating character. And uh, it, I think it explains, you know, why, and if you see me, modern adaptations of Sherlock Holmes, why there's such a focus on her character. Um, you know, like that, that um, I guess also the only reason is, is that like in modern day culture, 
it seems you have to have a romantic pairing of some sort, I suppose, you know? And you've got to have a female character. And I guess of all the characters in Sherlock Holmes, apparently in these novels, Irene Adler is the one that stands out the most. So hmm. Maybe because she, you know, she does manage to befuddle him. Uh, with him. There's a, yeah, be, befuddle him, yeah, in, in her own way. There's an interview, or not an interview, a review I read on uh, Goodreads, because uh, I tried to, you know, mix up my reviews, both modern and kind of older ones, particularly because some of these old short stories are tough to find reviews for. But there's this guy named Jason Koivu who wrote something recently. He says, Holmes done in by a, or done over by a bird? Certainly the man is not at his tip-top form here, and neither is the story. But it's a good one, perhaps for its contemporary pathos. Uh, search as I might, and reflect as I did, I don't understand the reference to contemporary pathos. I don't see any of that in her character or me feeling for him. I don't really f- feel for Holmes here. Do you? Yeah. I, I, again, I think it's kind of like me a little bit, maybe given a bit too of a higher point than usual. But when, when you give a really good reason for a 3.5 and I go to a 4, is maybe he's again thinking of like the mythos of the, mm, good point. the character yeah. in the modern age. You know? Yeah, yeah. Fair, fair point. Um, yeah. So, what about the environs? The environs. Um, I think the environs were kind of not really the focus in in this particular story compared to the other ones so far. I, I went kind of like with three point five on environs, to be honest with you. Okay. Right. Um, yeah. We get Lodge, Lodge cool. was what was well described, and you know, the, the coach house and the window getting into the house and. And I, I like the little serpentine, uh, like muse that are, you know, n- just around the corner there. And that was that, that was an interesting establishment of Holmes, you know, disguised as a groomsman, having drinks with these with these like other groomsmen. Or, you know, that, that 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 kind of created a, a very bohemian experience, I suppose you could call it. Um, but almost like a little fiefdom, almost you know, like a little the village next to a castle. That's kind of how I looked at it. Um, I never really. I don't know, got the sense of London in this story at all. I, it was a typical stuff that's already been established in the previous novels. So yeah. I think environment is going to be a little different in terms of when we did it for the Bond novels in, in these stories, because unless we go someplace different, London is London and 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 and, and it's and it's uh, suburbs, right? So there's really not much we can add well, to it in, in yes that capacity. No. I, I agree with what you're saying in principle, but the way that the environment is described, this is this is a quality mark too, and. And I think that true, yes, true. London is London, but in the sign of the four, London had some really nice descriptions. And here in this story, we get some nice like starting points of descriptions, but nothing's carried on. We just hear about the no. cab. We hear about the cabs. We hear more about Bryony Lodge than we do anything else. There's a great description of Holmes at the beginning, um, when, as you said earlier, he goes to visit him at Baker Street. Um, I was returning from a journey to a patient as uh, when I led my way through Baker Street. As I passed the well-remembered door, which must always be associated in my mind with my wooing and with the dark incidents of a study in Scarlet, I was seized by a keen desire to see Holmes again and to know what he, how he was employing his extraordinary powers. His rooms were brilliantly lit, and even as I looked up, I saw his tall, spare figure pass twice in the dark silhouette against the blind. He was pacing the room swiftly, eagerly, with his head sunk upon his chest and his hands clasped behind him. To me, who knew his every mood and habit, his attitude and manner told their own story. He was at work again. He had risen out of his drug-centered dreams and was hot upon the scent of some new problem. I rang the bell and was shown up to the chamber, which had formerly been my, in, in part my own. There's a great example of how Conan Doyle starts by describing the setting and then goes straight to the character. And that's probably mm-hmm. why I like the characters. You know, I gave them a 
principal mark of five. And here I'm going three for my environment because apart from Bryony Lodge and a little bit of the cabs that he travels in, we don't get a lot of description of externals or interiors. So, nah, three, just middling for me and 3.5 for you. So why don't you finish off then, Josh? No, uh, actually, no. I was I was looking up, I was looking at uh, the glance through my other score. Yeah, no, I actually wrote down three as well for environs. So all right, so three for you. Why don't you finish off then by talking about our secondary players? Okay, so secondary players. Uh, uh, so we have uh, Norton there, the uh, lawyer who ends up marrying um, Irene Adler at the end. There wasn't really much to him. He just seemed like I, I never. I got the point. You got the point that you know he's the lawyer and he's brought in because the. Count von Kram there slash King of Bohemia has sent his thugs in to search several times Irene's house. So some kind of protection, right? So that's where the lawyer comes in. But then for some reason, this guy must be charming or something. He seems like he's described as a world of do gentleman, carries a, a gold pocket watch around with them. Uh, there was, but besides that, he doesn't get much, much, much detail. Uh, but he ends up marrying her. So obviously he must be some sort of charm to him. Uh, then we have the maid. Oh wow! Uh, you're really like you're really dragging the bottom of the barrel going there. I am. I am screaming the bottom of the barrel because beyond those, because in this, I think with the short stories is that supporting players I don't think are going to be as varied in terms of the principals and the perpetrators. Well, maybe, but they'll. Who knows? There's fifty-five yeah. more. But of course, I, I leave the best for the last, though. Obviously, which is the king himself, who's a, mm-hmm. who is a wonderful. C- caricature of his era mm-hmm. and of his and of his people in that sense right like the the mask and the ridiculous cl- clothes and that the sense of just dramatic presentation of his character uh and uh, also very seems a very sort of like lusty character as well like he has to marry the, the, the scandinavian princess for political reasons but I got the impression, too, that he was even more impressed by Irene at the end of the story, you know, for blackmailing him and for doing all of this, right? Yeah, there was that. Probably also, probably also relieved as well. Maybe. In his own way, too, I think, in that capacity. Um, and beyond that, uh, yeah, supporting players, I think, you know, they added to the story in the sense of they fulfilled their functions in the narrative and... You know, there was some color brought to it by the king, and uh, but beyond that, uh, 3.5? 3.5, okay. I went to 3. Yeah. I thought that, yeah, okay, cool. I enjoyed the king. Um, Godfrey Norton did nothing for me whatsoever. Nope. Uh, the maid, I didn't even register after I finished the story. There was really nobody else there that did much. The king gets most of those marks, and he was only in it for a short period of time. I understand completely that you may be foreshadowing a concern and saying that the short stories, by their very nature, are going to uh, give us a tough time, a challenge in finding interesting secondary figures. But I I don't and environs as well. But I see this. I don't. I don't think that that's. I don't think that that's accurate. I think you're looking at it too narrowly. I think you're only mm-hmm. you're only perceiving it from a who is there and where do they go. I'm talking about the way that these figures and these places are written and conjured. Like I'm giving my mark for that as well. So I'm not just looking mm-hmm. at it from a how many are involved ingredient type point of view. I'm looking at it from a quality of writing point of view as well. It gives us an opportunity to read the stories more as literature that way instead of just what's yes. included in them. You know, so 
Um, I consider that I, I consider that inherently. I but I guess in in terms of you know in, in, in this, as a disc, you know discussing this story, I think what you're saying is absolutely correct. That that what we consider that that's part of what we absorb when we read a story when we when we read a text. We also need to discuss. Mm-hmm. you know, why they have that impact, you know, like these are, yes, there are secondary characters and they fulfill their functions, but why do they fulfill those functions or how do they fulfill those functions? That has to do with the quality of the writing. I think so. Yeah. Well, look, uh, I've just tallied up the scores. So for the first uh, Sherlock Holmes short story, we've got uh, you marking in at a 19.5 and me at an 18.5. And I just turned my speaker on there because I thought before we left um, this particular discussion and moved on to the redheaded league i would play for you that piece of music that i'd selected which i think i think does a pretty good job of characterizing the feelings the emotions of the story and it's written by a bohemian this antonin de Borjac legend mm-hmm. that many people know of uh this though is a, maybe a lesser known piece of music and because of holmes's penchant for the violin i thought i'd select this one it's a movement for Uh, no, it is rather a, a romantic piece that he wrote for violin and piano. And I thought that I'd play this out and we could have a little break here before we move on to talk about our second story. Sounds good.
a little Antonin Dvorak for you to close out our discussion of uh, Scandal in Bohemia, the first story uh, featuring Sherlock Holmes in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, published, collected at least, in 1892, but published in 1891 in the Strand Magazine. On to number two, Josh, The Red-Headed League, or The Adventure of the Red-Headed League, which is a story close to my heart as uh, a redhead. As a ginger, a, a redhead, a... Well, what, what what else do they call us? Ahino Barba. <laughs> Ahino Barba, yeah. Um, I think that well, that's, that's more of a beard. That's more of a beard, though. Uh, what was what uh, is the Latin? Rufus for red, right? Rufus, yeah, Rufus. yeah, yeah. I think that's an obscure uh, reference that, well, in a different world, would benefit from being discussed. But here, let's just move on. Redheads all yes. over this story. All over this story. Redheads. Explain why, Josh. Talk to me about the plot. All right. So we got Jabez Wilson. Uh, he's a pawnbroker. Speak, he, speak. Are you sure he's a pawnbroker yes. and not a member of the New York Knicks? He sounded like a basketball player to me. <laughs> he sort of does, yeah. He kind of he kind of does uh, sound like uh, one of those uh, weird kind of ethnic slash Anglo collisions. I, uh, an ethnic Anglo collision? Yes. Okay, and here's me thinking I was treading the racist card a little bit. Anyway. Um, I don't know what I'm saying. I, I don't know what I'm saying. I do, I, I, I do love the name Jabez. I think that's an awesome <laughs> name. This is definitely, in, for my money so far, the best name we've got in any home story to date. I like it. But carry on. Jabez, Jabez Wilson. Okay. So the name itself, I guess, you wouldn't expect a, a kind of a, you know, a, an older gentleman with fiery red hair, I suppose. Um so Watson once again, uh, he's out. He's out. He's, he he comes into London, I guess. You know, because things are so exciting back home. Apparently, uh, he walks in on on Holmes um, in the middle of a case, speaking to a client, and this is Mr. Jabez Wilson, who we've been talking about. And uh, Jabez Wilson, this pawnbroker, uh, seems to be taken um, on well, 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 well it, to, to the audience. I mean. You hear something about a red-headed league, and uh, just a second here. Well, when I when I read it, I was um, <clears throat> I was reminded of the uh, the South Park episode where Cartman starts, or you know, Cartman wakes up because the guys play a trick on him, thinking that he's got red hair, and all of a sudden he starts to defend gingers instead of making fun of them, and he starts his own sort of, you know. Uh, red-headed league. You feel you, you you see that one? No, I don't see that one. No, that's pretty funny. Yeah, I mean it culminates as a lot of these things do in a ridiculously hyperbolic um, ceremony of uh, of like human sacrifice and everything. Where um, I think Cartman rents out like a ballroom of the Holiday Inn or something to have his convention for redheads, and they're gonna they're gonna like kill people and all this kind of stuff. And he just basically becomes a fascist and a dictator and a cult leader and anyway then but then when someone breaks it to him that actually his hair's just dyed and they've you know colored his face with permanent marker um he gets a little pissed off and anyway changes his tune but it's funny it's worth seeing it's from like season nine or ten or something but yeah the adventure of the red-headed league here has nothing to do with that more to do with jabez wilson carry on yes yes jabez wilson and uh this who believes that he's been somehow scammed or played some prank on by the by Duncan Ross, uh, 
us, the administrator of this redheaded league. Uh, essentially, what, what the, he explains to Watson and to Holmes, of course, that uh, his loyal, his young assistant, uh, loyal young assistant at the pawnbrokers, uh, Vincent Spalding, comes up to him uh, with this note, with his notice that they're looking for uh, this redheaded league founded by some uh, American millionaire wants to entrust all of his wealth since he's passed away to 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 old London where he grew up and he wants to pass this on to someone who like him who is a redhead and so basically they want to get the, the but they want a perfectly type of fiery red hair in order to fill me the obligations that Mr. Isaiah Hopkins the millionaire in question uh, has asked for yeah there's so, a eugenic there's a eugenic field to this <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. This, the, the ginger master race seems to be uh, uh, <laughs> seems to be into implementation here. So we have, um, so we have Wilson, Jabez Wilson. <laughs> that name is so hard, weird to put together and to remember sometimes. Um, we have Mr. Jabez Wilson. He uh, goes to this uh, advertisement for the Redheaded League. Uh, away from his Saks Cobra Square environs, where his pawn shop is, and uh, he he goes there. There's a whole bunch of redheads waiting on the application to you know see if they qualify for the grant, the money that they're supposed to get for this job for the redheaded league. And of course, uh, surprisingly, Jabez Wilson passes with flying colors, and his job apparently is to come in tw- a couple of hours a day to fill out letters of the alphabet of, under the letter A. I know. Bizarre. And he, I, I, I don't know how well, redheads... Well, just thinking like logically, like, okay, so <laughs> this this billionaire is asking me for all of this money. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so this billionaire has all this, all this money, I guess millionaire would be a better term back then. Um, this millionaire is offering all of his wealth to a random redhead guy in, in London... And he's going to only give that wealth if you fill out each letter of the encyclopedia for him. Now, what about this either, you know, impels logic or even the ability to not think the slightest whiff of shysterism when it comes to this, you know? like I know, I know. And it's funny to me, like, <clears throat> I was trying to think in terms of history like how how were redheads perceived at this particular point in victorian london because i mean the history of redheads and the perception (laughs) thereof has been really interesting through i mean way back to when the gene you know showed up in the like uh, fifty thousand years ago in the plains of asia like that's when the redheaded gene showed up right and yes i found it really interesting because in the elizabethan era people were trying to become redhead and they would perox or they would like dye their hair with sulfuric acid and everything and they would like paint up their faces to try to to uh, look more like queen elizabeth and and then all of a sudden here we've got redheads who on the face of it come across as the stupidest branch of people ever they line up around the fucking block <laughs> to, to answer this ad and then when they're there like they're the desperate to get this job to copy fucking pages out of the dictionary like letter by letter and not really to wonder what they're doing like it's ridiculous what does conan doyle have against redheads or what indeed did the victorians at the time think of this like it's it's wild to me but 
I, I found it very interesting. It's absolutely wild. Yeah, I found it really. It's cool. very intriguing. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, the concept that came up and and how it came and how he came up with it. I'm wondering if there's any you know basis in fact of some of a scam like this going on. And mm. and yeah. you know what? I guarantee you, there's some guy like our perpetrator that probably came up with this. Moving on though, um, so. So he goes in there a couple times, a couple times, and uh, fills out the letters of the alphabet, and then it, and then he gets he gets paid for it as well. Like he gets paid. Uh, what was the amount? It was um, four pounds. Four week. pounds, yeah, four pounds a week, basically. And or was it a month? Maybe it was all four fine. pounds a month. I can't remember. I'll find four out. A month? You I keep talking. I'll four find pounds out. a week? No, four pounds a week for not purely nominal services. Ah, that's it. Yeah. So so nominal, right? And this is right here, like uh, you know, on Fleet Street. So right, right in the in right, right in the, like the big business uh, area of, of of London, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and I like the way that's all come together. Like how, because that was part of what made this seem uh, quite a believable thing was that the office was in Fleet Street. Like how, you know, only a reputable business could afford to hire the rent for an office in that area. And so there are things that really work well here in the story that we can, we can talk about it, you know, in, in the time to come. But, um, I think this is a pretty clever story so far. Yes, absolutely. And so the setup is, the setup is, is bringing us in this direction. So we're now going to the point where, Jabez, he then shows up one day and he sees that the Redheaded League has been shut down completely. There's a sign on the door and there's a notice saying the Redheaded League has been has been disabled. And he's like, "What the heck is going on? What you know? Like, I don't I don't understand. Is this some big prank? Like, have I been scammed? What exactly is going on?" And uh, and even so, like Sherlock Holmes is like, "No, you haven't been scammed because." They gave you the money. They paid you money. In fact, you profited from the whole situation, <laughs> you know, in your own ignorance in that fashion. Mm-hmm. And so, we, obviously, Jabez Wilson still wants to find out what the heck is going on. So he has Holmes investigate, and, and Holmes does. And it comes to the point where Holmes and um, Holmes um, and Watson head down to Saxe Coburg Square, wherein they visit uh, the pawnbroker's shop and they meet Vincent Spaulding, and the, Holmes can see the entire muse, you know, the shopping area that they have there. There's the bank, and there's the tobacconist, and then there's Jabez Wilson's pawn shop, and all those things. So he's, he's, he's putting putting together the case, as we can see. And so then he then returns later on with Watson again, but this time we also have our friend uh, Athelney Jones from the Sign of Forest showing up, although he has like a different first name for some reason. Yeah. And then he's also there with the with uh, Mr. Merriweather, who is actually the manager of the suburban bank on uh, on uh, Saxe Coburg Square. And as it turns out, we learn that there is a lot of gold bullion from from the from Napoleonic gold bullion actually um, being stored inside the vault of the um, uh, of the of the Saxe Coburg Bank. And of course, this is all going into the fact that Holmes is all we already know. Uh, at this point, as he always does, is that he has all the facts put together himself, and, and it's keeping them to himself as usual, and letting everyone guess around him as he always does. That uh, in fact, that there is some serious crime going on here, and he does a couple of uh, little maneuvers and a little bit of testing of the environment to um, cement his theories. And when he comes back with uh, Merriweather and Watson and Jones, the uh, Scotland Yard inspector, they head down into the uh in, 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 underneath they they had they head down in into this into the tunnels under the bank 
um, because it's, because basically this guy Vincent Spalding, who has only been with um, Jabez Wilson for a little for only for for a few or for a few months now, who he trusts implicitly, um, I guess because of his own naive nature, I suppose, which is kind of strange for a pawnbroker, but. Uh, you expect pawnbrokers to be a bit more of an untrustworthy source, yeah, you know what I mean? A little more shrewd in their judgments. Uh, a little more kind of like Dickensian villain, you know what I mean? But he's redhead um, after all, so... He's a redhead after all, so I guess he didn't know the difference. He's just a nice, friendly pawnbroker, I suppose. Which is funny, um, because in the medieval period, redhead, particularly the redheaded men, were um, considered villainous, you know? And, and the women were somehow charmed, and then it turned on them, and of course they became witches, and... Uh, the, the history of it's all wild. So I, I am quite, I'm, I'm being sincere when I wonder how the Victorians viewed this redheaded trait, you know, because uh, it would still have been a very rare part of the population in England and London at the time. So, so as it turns out, um, Vincent Spalding is, uh, or Jabez Wilson's assistant, is a uh, aspiring photographer. He, in fact, takes his camera pictures and he goes down into a little oubliette underneath the house, I guess you could call it, uh, in the pawnbroker's shop, and uh, he develops his pictures. In fact, him and his cohort, I guess it's, I, we assume it's probably Duncan Ross, is, in fact, burying a tunnel uh, right from underneath uh, the pawnbroker's house into the vault of the Coburg Bank, Saxe Coburg Bank. And this is, of course, where Holmes and Jones and Merriweather catch the culprits. And we learn that um, Spalding is, in fact, John Clay, a very infamous forger, blackmailer, murderer that's been doing this all across the country, all these different scams from Scotland all the way down to uh, London. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, with Holmes' uh, astute um, powers of deduction, he's able to foil John Clay's uh, grab at the vault and uh, at the bullion and uh, manages to capture both of them, satisfying Jones's uh, warrant as well for uh, John Clay's arrest and also, you know, po- also preventing the possible murder of um, Jabez Wilson as an, as an innocent, uh, I guess, conspirator in, in their case. Because if the evidence got back that they were somehow involved, either Jabez could have been killed by uh, Clay to silence him, or even he could have been rung up as an accomplice as well, unbeknownst to him. Because he does seem kind of a foolish, doddering, red-headed man, you know what I mean? Yeah, he does. He, he would have been further victimized. Yeah. In some way. But uh, that's about, that's about, the, that's about the, uh, the, the sum of the case. I mean... Holmes uses Holmes, you know, like he puts the pieces together very, very, very quickly. And even reading this narrative, you can kind of, I'm kind of going into the investigation part of it a little bit. But even reading this narrative, you can follow along as a reader. Holmes putting these pieces together, and you can kind of too, because outright the case is presented to you by the author that something's not right here with the very premise of the red-headed league. So that in itself offers a point of mystery. So it makes you as a reader kind of question, you know, as you go along, what the heck's going on here, and you're looking for other answers to explain it. Yeah, I'm, and gl- I'm, glad you, I'm glad you said that, Josh. Uh, sorry to interject, but I'm glad that you said that because I've made a note towards the end of this story, um, <clears throat> and this is exactly what it reads in the margins of my page. I'm suspecting at this point that the Red-Headed League interviews were staged to acquire the correct naive stooge, in this case Jabez Wilson, whose property would serve and give the proper proximity 
and cover root to the vaults. And so I had figured this story out before the big reveal. And at first I thought, excellent, I'm getting used to this Holmesian thing and I'm learning to read the story and the clues that are planted by the author. But I think I shouldn't pat myself on the back too much because while yes, I might be becoming a better investigator as I read and learn more about these stories, I also think what you're saying has a real good shred of truth that this one was set up a little bit more transparently. It was, but that didn't take away from I, it. Though. I, I think it was I don't think of, that took away from it. It doesn't. No, it, it it doesn't. It's like it's like you're watching just a really good. Uh, it's what it is. It's like you're reading a mystery novel, but you're following along with it. You're enjoying it. You know, like maybe it's a little more dumbed down than than his previous stories. I guess I guess you, you could say it that way. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why I liked it because it was it was easier to understand. I don't know. Well, now I'm condescending to you. I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> that's okay. That's all right, buddy. I'm used to it. Yeah. But yeah, so let's uh, go go into the the principles here. Right. So I I think Holmes was in fine form this this entire thing. He had everything figured out. But and even though, and I had, and of course the audience in this case probably has figured something out is not wrong here. So in this case here, for the first time, you're beat for beat following Holmes. Well, he's slightly in front of you in some capacity because he has some little coup to pull off with the whole, you know, when he banged his cane on the pavement and he was testing the mm-hmm. foundations, you know, underneath there because he could tell that it was hollow underneath there, right? That they were digging, that's where they were digging the hole. Yeah, I thought um, that was clever. Yeah, so there was things that he was doing there that still make him clever, but at the same time, you can still follow along. And, and Holmes was just in fine form in this whole story. And uh, I guess he was, as you could say, he was the top of his game. Watson was kind of a follow-along in this one, more so than Scanlon and Bohemia, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Why do you say that? Well, I mean, he, I mean, he did his, you know, like he... I, I just got a sense that I was more into Holmes' character in, in this story, and, and Conan Doyle was writing more about Holmes, the investigator, um, you know, in this this marvel of detective, yes. as opposed to like. I think you're. Yeah. Okay. I think I see what you're saying now. He, he's his posture is a little more confident here, uh, a little bit more, a little bit more firm detective than kind of rebel rouser, disguise merchant. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. He wasn't doing some 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 of his more. I guess non-conventional forms of detective work in here. He was using his masters of deduction, you know, to, to solve this particular case and whatnot. Because Watson seems totally confused as much as, as Jabez Wilson is at the whole thing, even to the point where, you know, this, this doesn't make any sense at all, you know? Mm-hmm. But at yeah, least Watson, yeah. for his own credit, you know, is given, you know, Conan Doyle gives him gives him intelligence in the sense of that. Whereas, what's his name, uh, Jabez Wilson buys into this redheaded leak thing right, right away. All, you know, Watson is like, "What the heck is this? This doesn't make any sense." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, when so, when he reads the advertisement uh, that uh, Jabez Wilson brought with him. What did you think about Holmes and Watson both brandishing their guns in this story? It just shows that they, you know they're kind of again they're working in, in tandem. Uh, they're the dynamic duo, the Batman and Robin, as we've been kind of alluding to. Mm-hmm. So did that did that help with your? Um kind of your scoring at all did that that sorry not help did that influence your scoring at all the fact that they were a little bit more ready to shoot yeah i, I kind of think that they were they were working in tandem here more than anything and i think i kind of correct my way my myself and saying was was watson was following along it wasn't that he was really following along they were just in perfect uh concert with each with with each 
with each other. You know, he had his usual confusions about things that Holmes could observe that he did not. And, you know, he just, he was able to describe, you know, everything Jabez Wilson was wearing and all this sort of stuff. But Holmes is like, well, that's some very great astute observations you have, but none of it relevant. Yeah. yeah. Of course, but it's good observations nonetheless, mm-hmm. you know, and Watson was able to follow along with it. And, and, and uh, he may not have been aided to the investigative aspect of the case, but you know he was there as Han, as, uh, as as Holmes's right hand man, yeah. and uh, I, I think seeing them working as a dynamic duo in this capacity, yeah, it brings it definitely brings me to the principles as a solid four in my opinion. Can I read a little bit then of um, about that sort of partnership? Because again, as with the previous story, we've got some nice uh, bromance going on here. And yeah, now, it's good and now, Doctor, we've done our work, so it's time we've had some play. A sandwich and a cup of coffee, then off to violin land, where all is sweetness and delicacy and harmony, and there are no red-headed clients to vex us with their conundrums. My friend was an enthusiastic musician, being himself not only a very capable performer, but a composer of no ordinary (laughs) merit. All the afternoon he sat in the stalls, wrapped in the most perfect happiness, gently waving his long, thin fingers in time to the music, while his gently smiling face and his languid, dreamy eyes were as unlike those of Holmes the sleuth-hound, Holmes the relentless, keen-witted, ready-handed criminal agent, as it was possible to conceive. So that that carries on a little while more. And then we get Watson kind of reflecting on himself. He says, I trust that I am not more dense than my neighbors, but I was always oppressed with a sense of my own stupidity in my dealings with Sherlock Holmes. Here I had heard what he had heard. I had seen what he had seen, and yet from his words it was evident that he saw clearly not only what had happened, but what was about to happen. So again, Conan Doyle reassuring us with the narration that Watson is the reader, therefore if you don't get it, it's okay. You're allowed to be stupid. You know, like, I I, I don't know if... If we are as stupid in this story, I actually like but, that. I, yeah, I, I like it I like too. That I, like, I like it too. Yeah, because this is this is not an ordinary individual. He thinks in a different way, and more and more and more. Like, I don't know. Like, I th- really think like Arthur Conan Doyle was describing this, a high function autistic when he wrote Sherlock Holmes. Because you know, the thing the thing is, is that like I know Asperger's wasn't ident- was identified as a like like a, a mental you know disorder until like the 1940s or whatever. Uh, because of Dr. Asperger's work or whatnot, but I, I do think it's some kind of case that high-functional autism obviously did exist in the Victorian era. Well, it's um, always existed. And, it's always existed. It's just never yeah, been. It's just never been understood and defined in that way. Exactly. And if you think of the description, you know, of of um, Holmes, you know, like like sitting in the stall, you know, on sitting he's sitting in the stall you know at the concert hall and listening to the to the to the violin you know and he's waving his hands back and forth you know like he's practically stimming in that situation yeah yeah you know like or he's just very kind of like very introverted that he's not aware of his behavior is so kind of odd because imagine going in there seeing like a bunch of victorian people all stuffed shirt you know like listening to a concert very formal and stuff and, and you have this one guy there in the audience sitting next to like this you know, next, next, next to Watson, and he's moving his hands around and just enjoying the music, not giving a shit what everyone, everyone else thinks, you know? Uh-huh. It's 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 engaging for sure. So you went four for the principles. I went 4.5. Uh, I, didn't, oh. I didn't like them quite as much as I did in the previous one, but the parts that I did like I thought were still really, really good. And like you, they worked well in tandem. Um, but, yeah, just maybe a shade below. And, and it's, a, it's an aesthetic thing, you know? I just think they're still... And by your score, too, I think they're still very engaging to read in this story, and uh, you won't be disappointed if you want a good Holmes and Watson adventure. 
Uh, on to investigation. I'll start and finish quickly. Um, I thought overall pretty cool story, man. Engaging all through. Clearly ridiculous, but kind of. I mean, it's a ridiculous plot, but it's it's kind of clever in its own way too. Like I like that we're dealing with common criminals here and clever criminals too. It's somewhat derogatory towards redheads. We've already said that that they'd be so gullible and eager to line up around a block to join this league, um, but. I can see how they were duped with it being uh, located at Fleet Street, which of course was the location of London's uh, Penny Press later to go on and become the tabloid center of the city. And I, I can see all of that, the publishing you know, environment and whatnot. Um, I like that. Uh, I like the characters the, the, and the way that they work together. I like the way the locations are used simply but effectively. And we'll talk more about that in a few moments, I know. But in terms of the investigation, I don't think it's too complicated in that way. No. Um, the way that it's a bit more transparent is, is nice. I can see um, that, and I suppose I'm, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that Conan Doyle had some sort of a, a fallout with redheads here, or, or a girlfriend that maybe <laughs> spurned him, although he was married at the time and was having an, an, an affair with another woman. But I don't know. There's, something, there's something going on here, but... One thing that did bother me a little bit, we're, we're told by Holmes that he's been after or inquiring about this John Clay figure for quite some time, and that now this gives him some closure, but we don't get any history on Holmes's relationship with John Clay, the criminal, and why he's chasing him or how he's chasing him. What did you think of that? Yeah, well, I just kind of think it just the whole, the whole John Clay reveal, you know, that Holmes knew exactly who this guy was or... Well, I, I think he knew it was John Clay when when he met Spalding himself, right? No, of course. But what I mean is that yeah, we we're we're told that there's there's a history with these two figures between Holmes and Clay, and at least from Holmes's part, he's been trying to get him for a while. True, which, true. Which suggests that he's been part of some other investigations that maybe haven't been or haven't haven't matched with closure for Holmes, and I just think it's. It's a little, a little disappointing that we don't get even a bit of exposition about why Holmes is interested in this character. What else has he done that's that's been of interest, or or is that just Doyle's cheap way of saying, "Oh, this is an important criminal." You know what I mean? Like, I don't have a cheap way of saying it's an important criminal. I I just think it's a nice bit of world building. I think into the Sherlock Holmes world that this character is like it is popular with all these types of characters, and Holmes being a master. I think it shows. The fact that it illustrates that Holmes has been on many, many, many cases that he's been that not all of his cases are, are are successes either. The fact that like Clay is still going around the country doing all of these scams mm -hmm. and murders and whatnot uh, to cover up his scams, he he's able to 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 to, to, to do this and it's hard to track down. And Holmes mm -hmm. has been after him not doggedly, you know. He's it's not like he's, I guess you could say he's kind of like a the way the way he's set up is almost like a proto Moriarty, but. In this case here, it just it just seems like this is just some guy that Scotland Yard and Holmes have been after for a long time, and it just gives a background to Holmes as, a, as an investigator, in my opinion. I, I think right. it's a nice little flourish, to be honest. Right. So you see it more, you, you see it less as uh, as like a gap in narrative structure, and more as a fleshing out or a strengthening of Holmes's characterization. Absolutely, and if I think okay. of the overall narratives that were kind of gains so far from these stories yeah well I, I had to think of this story like i did the last one now not as a novel but as a self-contained story 
And that did, I have to acknowledge, that did kind of bring me down a little bit in, in what I was feeling mm-hmm. about it. But I still think that the premise is really quite creative, both from a, a, a writer's point of view and also from a criminal implementation point of view. I thought that the tunnel and the kind of the Napoleonic gold, I thought all of this was really interesting. And I felt like, I felt like it was well paced, like believably paced. And uh, I liked the way that Holmes knew what day he would be trying. Like we have to be down here Saturday because Sunday's a day that the bank will be closed. And I, I felt like all of it worked really well. The deduction, I went 4.5 as well for this. So I, so far have really enjoyed this story. Both. Yeah. Uh, that's what I did. Wasn't, wasn't perfect. Again, the redheaded league idea is kind of a little bit too Dickens kind of whimsical. You know what I mean? But at the same time, it was a just well, very well put together story. So I went four point five as well. Um, right. In terms well, of the investigation, again, I also point out too that you know of Holmes like testing the concrete of him like automatically asking you know like how how long has Balding worked with you? Just almost. And if you go back and read the story again before you kind of realize you're putting it together, the clues are so much there, you know, and how it's all done, like. Oh, Spalding came up to me. Here's this letter, by the way. Go check this out. And I just find it really amusing that, in order to get the pawnbroker from from not noticing what he was doing down there, in, you know, in the dark room, so to speak, he, his scheme is to come up to get this guy to simply <laughs> write it. <laughs> I guess again, it's your. It's a, I guess it's a testament to your theory that maybe gingers weren't thought of very well. That so. I know you run a pawnbroker business and all, but you know this job where you write, you know, letters of encyclopedia. You know, each 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 where you take over each letter of encyclopedia for three or four hours a day. You know, while just so I can go downstairs in the dark room and build a tunnel over to the bank. <laughs> is it a genius or is it just kind of just like throwing shit at the wall and see if something happens? You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean, and I think even even so, like the the balls to the wall type uh, approach of just having something silly like that i i found it really kind of uh lightened things you know and i enjoyed it so i, I know it that made the me critic in me shouldn't but i did like it it made me kind of give a higher mark to the perpetrator to to spalding slash john gray as well yeah me because too. it just seems like this guy is i want more of this character the, the guy comes up with a scheme like this he seems <laughs> kind of like yeah. a, a, almost have a very kind of suave kind of suave kind of player type you know and i don't know i just wanted more of his character yeah me too i thought I, sleazy I as heck eh yeah Sle- like like slick and sleazy as heck oh totally and like used car salesman beyond <laughs> yeah anyway, i went uh, i went four for perpetrators here i i enjoyed them both but i did feel a little let down that i didn't learn more about john clay and, and his sort of story and and yeah, he's been up and down the country doing this type of stuff, but that's all we hear. And I know what you're saying about world building. I totally get that, and I appreciate it. But I would have liked to have learned a little bit more about how he got under Holmes's skin in the past, even if just a quick reference that we might then get developed later. And maybe we yeah. will get maybe we will get it developed later. Who knows? But I liked uh, I liked them. I thought it was cool. I thought they were gutsy and ballsy and gritty. And I went four out of five. Okay. Yeah, four or five for me as well, actually. All right. Well, we're pretty close. Just, so just, just for the reasons that that that, that, that I stated. Yep. I like his imagination, and I like I liked his quick thinking at this ridiculous scam. I like I just liked his I liked I guess his his bold his boldness and his, uh, you know, like what the heck? Let's see if this works. You know, I don't know. I, I just yeah. I just found it very entertaining. 
Roll the dice, yeah. Okay. Roll the dice, yeah. Um, in terms of environment, I've just got a little bit to say here, not very much at all, but I've made a couple of notes um, <clears throat> about it being just a little above standard. There's nothing really too remarkable about London, much like the last story. Although I did like Saxe Coburg Square. I thought that was cool. I liked the way that the like everything was tight there, and you knew when you were watching Holmes and Watson and, uh, survey the environment, you knew that like when Conan Doyle was telling you about this wall um, being shared adjacent to that wall and this business there, you knew it was there for a reason. I really liked the idea of the tunnel. I thought that was really cool. Um, and kind of the vault under the bank. And it was all cool. That stuff was cool. Um, but overall, I didn't feel as though the environment was like super thrilling. Um, I liked the way the denouement of the story played out underneath uh, and in the darkness with the tre- with the gold and whatnot. But Nothing I could get full marks for. Uh, just enjoyable overall. Saxe-Coburg Square is definitely worth a read. The pawn shop itself is cool. Uh, I went four. Yeah, I was Yeah, I was going to say 3.5, but I really did enjoy Saxe-Coburg Square. I like how it was all laid out. I could visualize it myself, you know, and it just made a very, very visual environs in my head that I could see. And you point out how, how like, you know, Holmes says, like, this wall is adjacent to the house, sorry, how... Arthur Conan Doyle mentions how this wall is adjacent to you know to, to this building and and and, and whatnot and what I like about it is that in his in the simplicity of his writing there he's describing clues to you and to 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 Holmes's train of thought and I kind of like that because now in, as I find more and more in his in his writing that he's kind of leaving the clues there for you now but he doesn't make them too overt you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you went four as well. I went four as well. All right, cool. Uh, finally, then, uh, we come to secondary or supporting characters. Jabez Wilson, I really felt sorry for him. and Yeah. Uh, and it's not just because I'm a redhead and I was like, oh, here's a nice redhead guy. I felt sorry for him because he he just seemed like this dumpy old middle-aged, older middle-aged guy who who was trying to get on and make a bit of money and was delighted. Kind of lonely too. Yeah, and very lonely. And I think because he was marginalized as a redhead, that did bring some pathos into it for me because here he is, a guy who probably doesn't get a lot of attention from the girls or anybody else. And, you know, he's got someone offering him four quid a week to basically copy out pages. And this would be a nice little bit of extra money to buy him some luxuries in his life. And, and he's just the victim of this, you know, ridiculous scheme and, I felt sorry for him, even though it was more circumstance than his characterization that made me feel that way. I I did feel sorry for him. Peter Jones was was okay. Oh, Peter, yeah, absolutely Jones. He was cool. In Whatever the story. he calls himself. <laughs> I liked I liked Mr. Merriweather from the bank, although he was only fleeting. I thought he was interesting as well. Uh, I but but realistically, I have to be serious about it. And although I I felt sorry for Jabez Wilson. And he was a redhead. There really wasn't much more to it than him just being a bit of a dope. Uh, I, I would like to have felt more. Oh, by the way, before I forget, Jabez Wilson um, enjoys his snuff, and I did a little bit of research on snuff. Would you like? Ah. To, would you Would you like to know anything about it? Because it was quite popular at the time, and still is available, of course. But uh, I I always wondered what it is actually. Ah, to be well, honest, let, let me help you with that. Snuff. Um, <clears throat> I'll first uh, lead up to it. Your experience has been a most entertaining one, remarked Holmes, as his client paused and refreshed his memory with a huge pinch of snuff. Smokeless tobacco, Josh. Quick hit of nicotine inhaled into the nasal cavity, often flavored or blended with 
any number of flavors, and I mean it. You think of a flavor, and there was probably a smokeless tobacco that was flavored, or that was flavored with it, uh, or could sometimes have been blended with it. So you got things like coffee, vanilla, honey, cherry, orange, plum, camphor, cinnamon, nutmeg, all kinds of different uh, flavors put into the smokeless tobacco. Snuff mm. is it's it's regarded in the West today, like America and Canada, I think, probably, and I mean Britain as well. Uh, sorry, I can't use that fucking term around here. People are getting ready for another referendum. Um, the UK or Scotland or whatever. It, it's regarded as an antiquated hobby, I think, but it is still readily available in tobacco shops of Europe. USA and Australia have pretty high restrictions on it, uh, but it's still sold as like cigarettes are sold, you know, despite it being a smokeless tobacco. And it, well, it's still, I had no idea. Contained. Yeah, it still contains nicotine and all that shit. But... And that's where its addictive property comes from. But it uh, I, there's also this product called a creamy snuff, um, which is manufactured in toothpaste tubes that you can get as well, which I guess you kind of like, like, you know, you rub it onto your gums, kind of like cocaine, I suppose, and let it do its thing, like chewing tobacco maybe or something. Anyway, mm. so yeah, snuff, smokeless tobacco, heavily flavored, very popular in Victoria, and very kind of, you know, uh, not just a lower class thing, very... Uh, posh uh, investment as well so that's enough and that's Jabez Wilson uh, I went 3.5 out of 5 I felt like on 4 but I, I simply couldn't even though I liked the characters I, for me personally as a redhead I would like to go 4 because I may never see another redheaded guy in a story of this nature but nah couldn't do it 3.5 I still think it's a good mark they're just He's just not in it enough. So, or sorry, there's not enough dynamic feature to him. So, what what about you for your uh, your secondary? Uh, I went with three to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Beyond the perpetrators, I didn't really find. I felt bad for Jabez Wilson and whatnot, but I don't know. Like, I just was surprised how he would be bought into. He would buy into something like this, right? And just put a really kind of level on his intelligence that I just I don't know. I just found that might have been a little bit. Decorate, you know, depre, you know, de- 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 I guess what's the word? Um, depreciatory, you know, to I'm not pronouncing the word right at all, but deprecating, I'm going to say instead, to you know, people of uh, red hair. And I, I just, and I just didn't found beyond that of being kind of a of a bit of a uh, you know, be, be being a bit of a stooge, as you said, or, or being a bit of a joke, he, there wasn't really much to him beyond that, you know. So would you be upset if he showed up in another story? If he's fleshed out and with, if he's fleshed out as an as, as as like a recurring character with uh with different traits that are added to him as he goes along, no, I wouldn't mind at all. Yeah. What about this John Clay guy? Uh, you want to see I, more of him? Well, he's a perpetrator. So, but in regards to as a just outside of the supporting players, yeah, absolutely. I'm curious to see what happens to him. Are we going to read about his a brief mentioning of his hanging or something like that, or who knows? Right, we might. But again, as a as a good segue into uh, the next story, we this we, we won't know that because the next story takes place before this one anyway. So it does indeed, yes. Uh, and uh, as a segue into that, why don't we leave the redheaded league with some help musically from Jerry Goldsmith and his orchestra, uh, a lesser known film score, Josh for a film called The Last Run, 
Um, <clears throat> why don't we play this? I think this is a great track. It's from the score called The Double Cross. And of course, there's a lot of double crossing going on in this story. There's a lot of deception. And I think if you're picturing the denouement of the story, where we've got Tunnels, Doug, Holmes and Watson, the bank manager, all hanging out there with the police, waiting for um, Duncan Ross and John Clay to come in and take that Napoleonic gold. Here we go. No, I don't know what that sound. Goldsmith and his orchestra. What do you think? Pretty cool. Um, yeah. Do you know what's funny? Like I, I feel like I feel like a little two seventies for Sherlock Holmes, though, in my opinion. Okay, fine. A little two seventies, but I thought the atmosphere caught well. You know, I think I think it was suitable for that. And yeah, absolutely. I would that... also recommend. Um, I, I even though like I find Hans Zimmer just for people who are film score enthusiasts there. I, I think Hans Zimmer has definitely fallen in terms of his in terms of quality over the past couple of years. But uh, his actual score for the first Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes is quite good, in my opinion. And there's a piece in there um, uh, that 
was very I was very comes to mind, you know, of, of that kind of situation in a Sherlock Holmes novel. That would be a good musical accompaniment to that. So I definitely recommend checking out that the uh, the soundtrack by Hans Zimmer there. Okay, I'll do that and uh, maybe use it for a future episode. What I what I try to do, and I guess yeah. we should I guess we should have said that at the very beginning that one of the things that um like I like to do. Uh, is try to find a little piece of music to match either the character or something fun going on in the story to just lighten the mood a bit and act as a nice uh, segue between between stories and after intervals of discussion. And uh, we got one more coming up after A Case of Identity, and I hope you like it. On to A Case of Identity. Let's finish this off, Josh. We've been going well. Let's uh, talk about the third and final story for this afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. So we have another case of scam with A Case of Identity. We open with Watson and Sherlock having this sort of existential discussion about, I guess, the the absurdity and the lack of the commonplace that can be found in what is commonplace. And it was just a very interesting discussion that Watson and Sherlock are having. Because it's, unlike the past couple of stories where, you know, we have Watson walking in on Holmes you know, on a case and Holmes bringing Watson into the fold. Now Watson is there already and it, and he's sitting with Holmes, spending time with them before a case even begins. So by this point here, we already we can, we can see established that that Watson is checking in on him. Now, of course, that's not quite correct in, in this context. If you look at it chronologically when these stories take place, though, because this actually takes place before um, the Redheaded League. It's uh, it's almost Even like it, it, was um, right, it was written two months or a month after the story is set in the chronology of Holmes. You mean as uh, before? Yeah, yeah, I, I, absolutely. But I think it's just it goes going to show that even between a redheaded league and uh, the redheaded league and uh, Scandal and Bohemia, Watson has been, you know, been spending time with Holmes more and more and more, going on to these cases with him but not just going on the cases but visiting him spending time with them going to concerts with him you know just have having their bromance right so mm-hmm. I, I i just i just wanted to you know remind everyone of no i and I, I'm, I'm glad you uh, did that because the beginning of this story does lay out a couple of pages of uh i keep saying banter but it isn't really banter in the true sense it's a conversation and kind of uh uh, back and forth between Holmes and Watson about what's been going on. And, and Conan Doyle always gives little references to his previous stories, or at least he has so far. Um, I wonder if, if you'd be uh, so generous as to allow me to read out part of this. This talking um, at the beginning, uh, Holmes and Watson are talking about how, or Holmes is trying to convince Watson that it's not the complicated cases that are the most revealing. It's actually the simple things in life that that lead to you know the most exciting cases. And exactly, in, in order to win his conversation or to win his argument, um, the evidence he uses is really quite funny. He talks about this um, this guy who throws his teeth at his wife. That's just I just I just gotta read it because it's funny. Um, <laughs> Indeed, your example is an unfortunate one for your argument, says Holmes, taking the paper and glancing his eye down on it. This is the Dundas separation case, and as it happens, I was engaged in clearing up some small points in connection with it. The husband was a teetotaler, there was no other woman, and the conduct complained of was that he had drifted into the habit of winding up every meal by taking out his false teeth and hurling them at his wife, which, you will allow, is not an action likely to occur to the imagination of the average storyteller. 
take a pinch of snuff, Doctor, and acknowledge that I have scored over you in your example. Now, there's, <laughs> a, cu- there's a couple of things going on here, right? Bit of a competition. Yeah, the bit of a competition, but there's also Conan Doyle giving himself a little stroke by saying these aren't the sorts of things normal story writers think about. Like, it's a bit self-reflexive. A little bit, yeah. It's uh, him going, well, I'm going to talk about something different, you know? I'm going to give you a taste of something different, you know? Mm -hmm. And then there was this, too, which I like, the very next paragraph. He held out his snuff box of old gold with a great amethyst in the center of the lid. Its splendor was in such contrast to his homely ways and simple life that I could not help commenting upon it. Ah, said he, I forgot that I had not seen you for some weeks. It's a souvenir from the King of Bohemia in return for my assistance in the case of the Irene Adler papers. So a connection to snuff of Jabez Wilson and to the first story, A Scandal in Bohemia, comes in the case that was given to him to hold his own snuff in by the King of Bohemia. I think that's a nice little, you know, cyclic way to tie it all together. Yeah, links in the chain there, eh? It's quite cool the way Conan Doyle does that, and I think maybe we, sh- you know, we- he deserves some props for stitching it all together that way through through yeah. objects as well as exposition and, and conversation. But you, you mentioned too about uh, before we continue about him, um, t- you know, reminding us of the story of the study in Scarlet or the story of the sign of four and all this, and it's almost like you know, like you're reading like an old uh, Marvel comic, you know, back in this back in the, the old school Marvel comic when Stan Lee was writing for it, saying. And here, gentle reader, we remind you of this story, you know, like... That's right. <laughs> you know, there's just a little kind of like um, authorial exposition kind of side notes, you know, just to remind you of the, the viewer that this is sort of a a, a, a a serial in many ways, more so than just a standalone novel. So, I think that's a good way to look at these still short stories is the fact that they are... Um, yeah, they are part of a whole, yeah, in some way. Yeah, it's a serial, exactly. Very much, very similar, I guess, to the Fleming Sweep that we were talking about when we did the James Bond novels. That's right. And if you've got six editions of The Strand each year, uh, although that did change and fluctuate a little bit, you would be expecting a home story, once they kind of got into a rhythm, to reflect a little bit back on, on what's come before to maybe, if not remind the reader in terms of plot, at the very least uh, at the very least, provide continuity in the experience of reading a home. So, yeah, that, that's that's quite cool. So what about the plot, Josh? Yeah. Yeah, so so there's so um, so showing up at the door is um, is Miss Mary Sutherland. Uh, she has recently lost her her betrothed Hosmer Angel, and that doesn't sound made up at all. Oh no, but Hosmer, uh, yeah. I don't like the, I don't like that name as much as Jabez, but that's just no me. Hosmer. Some sort of like German kind of name or something like that. I don't I don't, I don't know. Anyways. Hosmer Angel is even. I have no clue how this guy came up with that name, but we'll get to this guy later on. He's a bit of a piece of work. So, Miss Mary Sutherland, uh, she lives with her her mother um, and her slightly younger than her stepfather, uh, Windebanks, who is basically working for like a, a, a wine merchant in 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 London. What we understand is is that her lover, Harzman Angel, whom she met at a uh, at a local ball, gas fitters ball, as it was called, uh, has uh, who they were supposed to get married actually um, after a couple of uh, after a brief courtship. Actually, I think they were engaged on their first walk, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty quick. Uh, Hosmer acts fast. 
He does act fast, yeah. Like, what's his move? You know, like uh, I'm curious yeah. to see. And you talk about gullible redheads. Yeah, seriously, yeah. I guess even more insulting for women, I suppose. That that's what Arthur Conan Doyle is insinuating here. Um, uh, no, I, I don't think he's doing that at all, too. To be honest with you, but so we learned that essentially Hosmer left Miss Mary Sutherland at the altar, and uh, he has disappeared completely. And she wants to find out what happened to him. And it's unlike I think the last two stories, the narrative pretty much unfolds as expected. Holmes is already in the know, and like the and again like the redheaded league we get an idea through the clues that Holmes leaves and through how Holmes is so overtly asking the questions about what's going on we kind of we kind of piece together again what the what the case is here you know what i mean yeah yeah so essentially the story reveals itself that at um this Hosmer angel guy who you know because who spoke with a very scratchy voice and and who, who wore, like, who had a very scratchy voice, and, you know, he wore a big beard and stuff, and he doesn't really sound like someone that would appeal to, like, a young woman, like Miss Mary Sutherland, to be honest with you, but he was very nice and kind and sweet, well, and she was taken in by it. And she's a fat but chick. That's important. At the same time, it could have reminded her of her, of her of her late father, it's very possible, but... Uh, no, I think it has more to do with the fact that she's a fat chick. That could also be the fact too. Yeah, that's right. No, yeah, no, she's I'm a little not, you know, I know that's, portly. That's, yeah, a little portly. I know that sounds nasty. She's a little but... portly. She's a portly spinster who's getting, know, you know, know, you know, but who, 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 even though she's a portly spinster, she's getting a lot of money, um, an inheritance from a, a stock that her uncle holds for her in in New Zealand. Uh, but why? So, is she, why is she going to these balls? You know, I mean, she she wants a date. She wants some attention. So I can accept. The fact that maybe she's a little more gullible because she knows that she's in competition against the Irene Adlers of the world and just doesn't have that, that, uh, what, that, uh, uh, joie de vivre, if, <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I don't want to spell it out there, buddy, but she's a fat chick and I think she's aware that she's a fat chick and, and that has obviously allowed her to be taken advantage of maybe a little easier, the same way that redheads, if they're as stupid as, Doyle says they are, um, were able to, you know, line up around a block to get four quid a week for copying the encyclopedia without another thought of why. That's definitely true. And I guess maybe she believed that Hosmer probably couldn't had to settle anyways. You know what I, you know what I mean? <laughs> Given his scratchy, weird, scratchy voice and his beard and all that. Right. So, yeah. And his bad eyesight with tinted you know, lenses. Just, the bad eyes with the tinted lenses. Yeah, that thing is really, really, really difficult. <laughs> you definitely had the beer goggles on if that's the case. But unfortunately, as we soon learn, that Hosmer Angel doesn't even freaking exist. It is, in fact, her father-in-law, Windebank, trying to keep her uh, and her mother conspiring against her own daughter to keep her to keep her in the household. Uh, I know so the much as so much as that, like her experience with Hosmer is designed to essentially uh, make her hate men altogether. And become a spinster for the rest of her life, living in the household, collecting that Auckland fund, uh, while you know the the the, the slightly, uh, I guess, miserly paid wine merchant uh, Windebanks and her mother can collect, and that's the whole the whole idea of the whole scheme. 
you could say one thing about his character, Windebanks, is that at least he wasn't trying to go for the daughter in that respect and marry her or something and abandon her mother. He's fine with her mother, but it's just a matter of he just needed he just wanted the the, uh, the uh, money and uh, and he and he needed to keep her close and he couldn't let, let, let her be take, be taken away. Okay. So he's a bit of a of a silly knave in that respect, anyways. And Holmes pretty much says so himself. In fact, he's quite. He almost pretty much beats the shit out of uh, this guy. He just and ch- just chases him down the stairs, you know. And mm-hmm. but he doesn't inform. Well, he threatens to the, beat him uh, up. What? He threatens to beat him up with a cane. Or well, the, the, he the grabs stuff. his whip or something. Yeah, it's a, or like a whip. A whip. Yeah. Grabs like a whip or something. He's going to just. just <laughs> It was quite an amusing situation because the guy like stumbles down and runs, run, like shits his pants and runs out the stand right down, right down the stairs to the street. You know, you gotta wonder what Mrs. Hudson thought about that. Um, but but it was good to see Holmes kind of you know re, reactive to a to a, in a sort of human compassion in that way. Yeah, you know, and how angry that it made to feel and uh, disgusted he is by him. How disgusted he is of it. Yeah, exactly. He kind of sees himself as almost like a benefactor of mankind in that way, or. Kind of a, in his own way, he believes he's kind of dispensing almost like a philanthropy to mankind and helping these people with their problems. And he wouldn't do it if he didn't have a motive for it, right? So it's interesting how Conan Doyle is kind of is kind of sketching these little these little tidbits of humanity in in the human calculator machine, you know? Totally. And this is going to be an interesting one to discuss our our scoring for because I didn't really score this one particularly highly, although no, I, although. I found it really enjoyable to read. Like I, I did like the coterie nature of it. Like yes, they don't go out to London and spend a lot of time, but I, I kind of like the human element to this. That these these are guys that are just th- these are more everyday criminals. These are the sick family people that take advantage of one another. Who you know are very much upon us and within our own neighborhoods. You know these are the, well, I, I could cite some from our own families perhaps, but um and and. I'm a little bit too uh, good-natured, I think, on this Saturday to do so. I just feel like these types of criminals are real human, and Holmes's reaction to them uh, is also quite quite fitting and appropriate. And so while the story doesn't branch off into great, crazy, uh, deluded twists, the disguise being perhaps the, the biggest ruse of uh, Hosmer, I feel like I, I, I didn't score it highly, but I still nevertheless found it really quite real i found this a real story maybe where the others were a little bit uh a little bit inflated this one this one was more real to me and i enjoyed it for that i kind of liked how like it was that dial m for murder feel to it where it's almost like a stage play you know and how it was done because and it, it, holmes actually solved that entire case without leaving his apartment you're right and there is that stage play element to it and dial m but, for murder is a great is a great thing to compare it to because yeah. while obviously the motivations are very different there's still that familial um, advantage that that is looking to be uh, you know exploited and, and you're right man this that's that's a good way to look at it i hadn't thought of it but and even modern example too i mean the the, the bbc sherlock there's episodes where, in between the main case of the story that they're dealing with, where Sherlock Holmes solves a bunch of cases at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, it shows him, you know, in that consulting aspect. This is one of those cases that, like, you know, he would solve, like, in two minutes. You know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. that, that's an example yeah. of, of getting all the information all together. Like, he had to send a letter to this uh, wine store to get information back and see if the typeface matched or whatever. Whereas, with a smartphone and a laptop, like, the Benedict Cumberbatch. Sherlock could solve that in two minutes. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. So and it's just kind of interesting comparing the modern versus the old of, of how this case would be solved. And I'm slowly making my way through Sherlock, the modern series. I'm, I'm slowly making my way through it because I don't want any of it to impinge upon my reading of the stories. Good, um, good. But they don't, the things... in my opinion. I think they vary very different. They vary differently. Uh, one of the things, though, that um, <clears throat> one of the things that stands out for me here is a petulant tone that Holmes takes, particularly with Watson. Um, you know, he says. Oh, they, they say in an exchange, you appear to read a good deal upon her, which was quite invisible to me. This is Watson. Uh, not invisible, but unnoticed, Watson. You did not know where to look, so you missed all that was important. I can never bring you to realize the importance of sleeves, the suggestiveness of thumbnails, or great issues that may hang from a bootlace. Now, what did you gather from that woman's appearance? Describe it. And he does describe it, and then Holmes says... Uh, well, Watson, you're coming along wonderfully. You've really done well indeed. It's true that you've missed everything important, but you've hit upon the method... And you have a quick eye for color. But never chest general impressions, my boy. Concentrate yourself upon the details. So kind of like Conan Doyle is wanting to give his reader a, a leg up in how to view the world too, you know? It's true, yeah. There's kind of a... Uh, he wants people to see the way things the way that they are. And there's more to everything than just the surface, you know? And, and I find, like, I guess in the modern context of Sherlock Holmes is that the Cumberbatch version... He, he's just more petulant than he is kind of philanthropic. You know what I mean? Yeah, completely. And so There's even a line that he says, like, I'm not on the side of the angels or something like that, right? Well, I, I don't know about that. Um, but anyway, uh, well, let's, let's just get into it then. The, uh, the, the, yeah. principle, the principles. I think the principles work well here in this story. They're engaging. Um, they are not in any way dynamic, though. I felt no. as though Holmes and Watson make a... You know, they add more meat to the bones of their relationship, but nothing happens that I think puts these characters in an interesting uh, place for us to judge them beyond the average. Like, I don't think they're they're put into, uh, or their brains are challenged very much. Certainly Holmes's isn't, and the witty repartee they have about how much they know and and or sorry about how much Holmes knows versus Watson and and how Watson doesn't look at the right details that's really all the development we get in their relationship um this i think of the three stories for me personally Josh this is the weakest of the the partnership not that not because yes. it not because it isn't it isn't there just because it, it it doesn't do much like this is more waiting for Holmes to just reveal it you know well, to me, it's 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 I I I don't know. I gave this three point five. That was my final score, by the way, um, on Same principles. Is that I liked how this where they have established now that Holmes and uh, that Watson, despite being married after sign of four, is still going to visit is still going to visit Holmes. So the bromance is on, as you say. Um, the game is afoot. They're doing, you know, they're doing, uh, they're doing their, their, their thing. We open with them having a discussion, um, you know, about the surprises that occur in the commonplace, and 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 uh, they're having like this, as you said, a witty repartee together. There's a great back and forth between them. Then Miss Sutherland shows up. There's a case they got to deal with. Watson kind of sits idly by and does his thing and makes the wrong assumption, and the Sherlock cracks him on it. She's kind of like lecturing him as he goes through this whole case together and then Sherlock solves it very quickly obviously right all in the context of, of not even leaving the room in that yeah. in that case right mm-hmm. so it's almost just like it's like just an average day in the life of Sherlock Holmes and Watson hanging yeah. out together oh here's a case well That's let's right. deal with that and then have a discussion about it afterwards saying you know I 
I'm not going to tell her about uh, that her husband Angel, you know, was in fact her father-in-law. That would kind of hurt her. And I, I, I liked how Holmes decided to spare her. And I liked how he had that moment of anger with 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 the with the Scheisser Winster uh, Windebanks. Um, just how that disgusted him, you know, and that brought out more flavor to his character. But again, that's why I give it three point five instead of three. Yeah, I, I like what you're saying. I, I can't really disagree with any of it. Um, I, I think it's interesting as well. And what you say actually leads us nicely on into uh, the investigation. I went 3.5 as well for that, um, for very much the same reasons. And what you were saying about the everyday life, like this is an everyday life in, or everyday of Sherlock Holmes. I do think that this investigation is kind of slower because... We don't change the setting, but for that reason, it is more um, every day, and it's and it's cool to see Holmes work from home. Like it is interesting, and it gives us for the first time in the series a look at him not having to leave home, just doing something more domestic, working out a problem more familial, a little less uh, important in terms of consequence to the yes. greater London world or the greater world of crime and. And law, and I find that that is interesting. And so, from a novelty point of view, the investigation here is is good. I don't want all my Holmes investigations to be like this, like some great Methuselah sitting on a throne and 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 you know fixing problems. But I do like the fact that this is one that he can fix with just a couple of visitors to his door. I think you're thinking of Solomon, not Methuselah. Yeah, Methuselah is a really old guy, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. Sorry, Solomon. Solomon is the wise, yeah. the wise king. Yeah, always yeah. there to correct me, aren't you, buddy? You you are the Holmes to my Watson. I absolutely am. Uh-huh. That was a really great. That was a really great biblical historical reference there, Scott. Scott, but unfortunately, it was it wasn't Methuselah. It was actually uh, <laughs> uh-huh. S- Solomon. Pay attention to details, my boy. <laughs> yes. Right. Anyway, um, yeah. So the investigation, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was novel. Um, I thought it was cool. There's a couple of things I'd like to uh, make reference to, though, just for a moment. Um, I, I had a note in here that of the <clears throat> the different narrative devices are a little more transparent here that Conan Doyle uses as well. Like um, midway through the story, uh, Watson shows up. He had to go home or something. He had to sleep with his wife or something like that. I'm not sure what it was. But anyway, he goes home and... He comes back and he smells all the chemicals that are being used. So obviously, one of the things Holmes was doing, because this case didn't properly occupy his mind, was play with his chemicals, his little chemistry set. Uh, and, well, have you solved it? I asked as I entered. Yes, it was the bisulfate of barata. No, no, the mystery, I cried. Oh, that? I thought of the salt that I'd been working upon. Well, there was never any mystery in the matter, though. As I said yesterday, some of the details are of interest. The only drawback is that there's no law, I fear, that can touch the scoundrel. Who was he, then? And what was his object in deserting Miss Sutherland? The question was hardly out of my mouth, and Holmes had not yet opened his lips to reply when we had heard a heavy footfall in the passage and a tap at the door. And so before ACD, you know, reveals it, we have this little device here that, oh, oh, wait, uh, Holmes can't answer because someone's at the door. And so I got another 10 pages of having to wait for it, you know? <laughs> suspense it's like, it's like Hitchcock uh, the audience knows the bomb is under the table right yeah the MacGuffin yeah yeah the MacGuffin as you say that's correct um, yeah but anyway I I liked it I thought that it's cool and I like the fact that maybe what interested Holmes and what perked his interest I suppose specifically is the fact that he sniffed out 
that there was an element of disguise here, and himself being a master of disguise would have maybe drawn a little bit more attraction from this case to his senses than a different one, because if a disguise is involved, then he might, you know, he might be uh, apt to pick up on it. Or he's like, what kind of bullshit name is Hosmer Angel? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right, yeah. What kind of a bullshit name is that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right anyway like, i went sorry man i look uh, for all these reasons like it, it's not a hugely great score and i feel like i'm underselling at the point a little bit but or maybe overselling the point i don't know i've talked too much maybe but i, I just feel like it's cool to be at home with holmes even though the investigation is of a of you know minor importance i felt it was interesting um it's not a high score, but it's it's a good score. Three point five is what I went for. I, I wanted Me, to go higher. I did want to go higher, but I just don't feel like the story deserves it. I kind of like the, the the device that the story the story uses, um, being 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 a very standard kind of case as opposed to like some, something more dramatic, like the sign of four, or studying the Scarlet, or even the scandal in Bohemia, for example, or you know, redheaded league. Um, but I. I I found like the investigation, like where Conan Doyle, I found re- left the clues very well in for you to find in um, Redheaded League, where you could pick them up easily. Though at the same time, if you read through it, like it works together so well. It was just too obvious and transparent. I found in this particular story, and halfway through, maybe it's just my knowledge of detective fiction or genre of the genre in general that I could just feel that this guy was totally put in. You know, halfway through, I'm like, okay, this guy is the father-in-law is disguising himself as as this Hosmer Angel dude, right? Mm-hmm. There's just there's just it was just too overt in comparison, and it just wasn't as strong as the story, in my opinion. There were okay. some great faucets of character. Uh, that's what I, I took away from this: is the day in the life of Holmes and, and Watson, and that's what I appreciated from it. But beyond that, I, I can't give it a four, three point five for me. Right. Well, so far we're we're right on par with each other. I I didn't have as much of this answered as you seem to have had. I knew that there was something up with the father, and I knew that there was something up with the letters that she was receiving because they they uh, or he. Uh, the Doyle, letters Doyle, is what gave it away yeah, for Doyle, me. Doyle made it very apparent that these were all typewritten, which is a strange thing to do for a love letter. Uh, and the whole Paris trip, I knew that there was something going on when he had to travel there to sell wine, but you know. I didn't know that he was. I didn't know immediately he was disguising himself. I, I was thrown by that, so I found that kind of interesting. But three point five is still a passing mark. Um, in terms of the perpetrators, I went higher here, and the reason I went higher here is because I think there's a realism to them. I think, as I said earlier, these are everyday villains who aren't, you know, planning to blow up the world with nuclear weapons or steal rockets from an armory and hold up banks at hijacking. These are people who are just deceptive fuckers that want to take and claw grasping covetous old sinners as dickens would say and i like that there's this real element to dirty london and dirty people that holmes is dealing with and his repulsion towards them as well so i went four of out of five on that because i wouldn't mind reading more stories with regular criminals this way like they don't all have to be okay. john john clay mastermind moriarty strategists for me yeah I, I like an everyday criminal i feel like i can relate i don't want to say that but i feel that they are relatable and for that reason four out of five solid mark i'm happy with it yeah it's 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 i, I it's it, it, it's true um i gave a 3.5 on on, on that okay. i just didn't find the villains as conveying i i think i gave the point 
sorry, as compelling. I, I gave the point five extra to do what exactly to what you said. I just don't think it warranted a full four in, in that. In, 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 in my in, in my view, mm-hmm. um, I do like how they were like the everyday type of crook and criminal. Like you have a mother who you know like there's you could think of, you think in your mind you know outside of the narrative why the mother would go along with this you know like yeah does she, it, she she's being compelled by the by this father-in-law by, by the by her mm-hmm. by her new husband to to, to to do this to her daughter and go along with it and help make the disguise and and whatnot but is she doing it because she wants to keep her daughter around and or is she doing it because of the money or because her husband tells her to do it so you got to wonder about the mother's position too so it creates a very kind of familiar dynamic of family uh distrust and and whatnot that we see even nowadays and so for that i gave it the extra 0.5 and i agree like i would like to see more of these type of characters in sherlock holmes and him solving these little minute cases you know what i mean yeah well onto environs and for my part i felt as though uh this was a story that could have made better use of the interior of holmes's you know chambers or, or the rooms and yes. I, I feel like, okay, so you're going to set a story inside. Nothing wrong with that. Talk to me about the furniture. Make some more overt references to the books on the shelves or the smell of what's coming through Miss Hudson's kitchen or whatever. Like, you can do something there even though you're restricting your environment. I don't feel as though that is a throwaway bad thing to do, to stay inside. But this story doesn't deliver very much at all. I went, yes. two, I went 2.5 on environment, and it's not because it doesn't change, it's because there's nothing done there. And so, coming back to something, a concern of yours, a few, uh, or about an hour ago, I guess, in our discussion about how, you know, the scoring system might be challenged because of A, B, and C. I don't think it will be. I just think this is an opportunity where a low score is deserving because nothing is drawing the reader's attention to the environment. And yes. it's not important to the story. And Doyle could have done something more with it. But unfortunately, the 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 ink-stained cuffs on her uh, on her uh, blouse and her coat and the shoelaces untied or, or you know, or sorry, the different colored boots or whatever it is she's got on. That's not environment. That's that's not enough for me. So 2.5 out of 5. And maybe that's even a bit generous with this one. But there it is. I, I went with 2. Okay, cool. <laughs> so... Right. I was just, I that's my blunt, um, my 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 blunt breakdown of uh, of the environs for uh, that story. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And uh, what about the supporting players? Eh, uh, two point five, I think, is my final voting on that. Miss Sutherland wasn't particularly very interesting. You know, she was kind of functional in the narrative. I did like how she brought out Holmes, kind of like almost a fraternal kind of concern for her and whatnot. I found that kind of, you know, that, you know, that he he's moved by, by her situation in that regard. Um, but I mean, she, but she could be anyone in that place, right? Not that particular individual that moved him to do so. Um, I, I, and, uh, and again, the perpetrators were dealing with the mother and, uh, and the father and the father-in-law. So there were, there were, there was much beyond that, unfortunately. So, there really wasn't. There was no. There really wasn't. That. The only other. The only other. The only other. Other character was Mrs. Th- was Mary Sutherland, basically. Yeah. And, so, uh, yeah, so, due to the lack of supporting players and the fact that that the supporting player wasn't really interesting to begin with, and it wasn't really any faucets to a character that made her stand out to me. Uh, I don't know. I'm going with uh, two point five. 
Okay, well that's exactly what I went with too, which brings my score to a total of 16 for a case of identity. And uh, your pipes score was 15. So that's your lowest and definitely my lowest, although I did seem to appreciate it just a tad bit more than you. Uh, in a recap, Adventure of the Red-Headed League or the Red-Headed League, I was 19... You No, sorry, I was 20.5. You were 19.5. A Scandal of Bohemia... Uh, BFG, you were 19.5 and I was 18.5. So we didn't see too differently on this, but it's interesting. Uh, you know, you like to scandal the Bohemia a little bit more, uh, allegedly for maybe its place in the canon um, and mm -hmm. Irene's role. I liked Redheaded League more, which is not surprising given the color of my own hair, if we're going <laughs> to strip it down to that level. And the case of identity, neither one of us were really super enthused about, but. I appreciated its standout perpetrators as being realistic and uh, quite tangible for a reader. And that's that's us then, uh, part one. Let's. It's before... funny though how the scoring goes though, because outside the scoring, I just want to stay this on record, is that about the three stories, I actually like the Red-Headed League the best. So yeah. it's kind of interesting how that turned out. <laughs> it is pretty. Well, you had the same score for that as A Scandal of Bohemia, but if you're, if you're saying that's the one you'd recommend of the three? Yes, 100%. Yeah, cool. Me too. That's actually interesting. That's the one I'd recommend as well. Um, before we close off here, our discussion of this, our third episode, Enlighten the Pipes, let's have a look ahead to our next three stories. We're going to be looking at um, the Boscombe Valley Mystery. Hmm. That's the fourth that's published. We're then going to be looking at, because uh, they're all mixed up in my anthologies, The Adventure of the Five the Orange Tips. The Five Pips. Orange Tips. Mm -hmm. yep. and, and then The Man with the Twisted Lip. A man with the twisted lip. Yeah, that's it's pretty cool. So we're going to be three more stories in what another two or three weeks, probably. I actually, actually, I tell you what, I got an Easter holiday coming on. School's closing uh, on the thirty-first of March, so I'll have two weeks off. Let's schedule it for the beginning of April. Yeah, we can work around that. That sounds great. Awesome. So uh, we hope everyone's enjoyed our little dissection of uh, the first three stories of the Strands publications that became the collection, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, more more to uh, do next time around, and uh, some more insights to do to be found, and uh, and you know, and see if we can find something out of the commonplace that that's so absurd that makes it more interesting. So um, so like Holmes, you know, we're not uh, bored by this talk of literary discourse. Absolutely, I agree a hundred percent. And speaking of finding things a little different or out of the ordinary, uh, thematic links to this song. Um, but maybe not so much lyrically. This is uh, in dedication to the poor treatment of Miss Mary Sutherland at the hands of Hosmer Angel. Hollow Notes singing Rich Flash. Girl. <laughs> It's been fun, BFG. We'll see you next time. Take care, Bowman. 